what is my podcast about? This is a podcast where we sit down and discuss random topics to see if we can find out just what our episode or podcast in general is about. Today, my name is Keith Ramsey, and I'm joined as always by Peter Akerley. Hello. And Matthew Grace. Hello. So, we have an interesting episode for today. I don't think anyone has figured it out. We... We were real subtle with the hints we gave last episode. We were told we had to give some hints into what we were doing to make it seem like we have some idea of what we're doing. Uh, yeah. To clarify, we're not just coming up with these off the cuff. There's a little bit of planning that goes into these. and It was suggested that we kind of hint, yeah. but and I think... We, I think we managed to fly the hint nicely because... I think we were a little too subtle with the hint. I think we should be a little bit more... I mean, we were leaning... We were still trying to decide between two different topics at the time. Now, now, to be fair, for those of you who didn't catch what the hint was, if you notice, if you speed up the episode fast enough, it sounds like we say wizard over and over again throughout the whole episode. Yeah, if you played the video at, or the podcast at two and a half times speed, we just say wizard repeatedly. Uh, now, in the meantime, before we get into our topic, uh, there are a few things I'd like to discuss. Uh, a few things got announced, came out. One thing I'm pretty excited for is Deadly Premonition is getting a Switch release and Ooh. a sequel. So a very good cult game that doesn't get a lot of popularity. Uh, I played it when it originally came out. I bought the god-awful PC port when it came out. Because <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I use a controller for when I want to play it because I already know how to play the game with the controller. But for some reason, the controller doesn't accept any inputs. So when you go right, the camera goes up. Oh! <laughs> and you, could, you, gotta, you try to fix as best you can. So you have to like fiddle with the inputs to like make it that whenever I go right, it's going to go up. But instead it wants to go right because I changed it to go right. Yeah. Uh, and there's a sequel coming that's supposed to take place in two different, uh, like, times. Ooh. They jump back and forth between uh, Francis York Morgan and the new character. In other game news, uh, this happened recently, but Overwatch 2 is happening. Yeah, this uh, almost, to me, like, obviously this has been in the works for a while and we're just hearing about it now. But it seems very fortunate timing on their part that League of Legends just came out and said they're essentially releasing one of every type of game. And that's essentially they're doing their own version of Overwatch with League Heroes. And a couple weeks later gets revealed, uh, no, Overwatch 2. Ignore the League of Legends news, we're doing Overwatch 2. Which, the, the funniest thing about uh, Overwatch 2 is, like, the big, really, announcement is it's going to have story mode now. Yes. So, kind of has to make wonder, is Overwatch 1 just gone now? Is it all going to be Overwatch 2 where they're just going to release story? Does, and story-wise, Overwatch 1, even though the game was out for so long and played for so long before uh, Overwatch 2 came out, Nothing really happened in Overwatch 1. Literally, the story of Overwatch 1 is probably like a couple of days of just all the characters being activated by Winston. Yes. Because yeah. in the trailer for Overwatch 2, it's the characters actually meeting them each other and establishing the base Overwatch team moving forward. Yeah, the uh, Overwatch 1 has a huge amount of story and lore, but like none of it takes place within the game. It's all from different comic books or stories you can read in other sources. But this whole world where it's being protected by a group of heroes called the Overwatch, and then the Overwatch breaks up because of infighting. And Overwatch 2 seems to be the reformation of Overwatch, but yeah, there's no real story to Overwatch 1. I am super excited for the story mode, because when the first Overwatch came out, I played the beta, I thoroughly enjoyed it, so I pre-ordered the game as soon as I got it. I played it for maybe 20 minutes, then never touched the game again. <laughs> I played it quite extensively I... myself, but I did fall off of it eventually. I suspect uh, Overwatch 2 is going to be a lot like Halo in that it's got this massive story that everyone loves playing through, but most people are going to end up playing it for the PvP. And is it going to be just, you know, the straight story from release, from uh, start to end of what happens in the campaign? Or are they going to have, like, possibly, like, moving forward, a, lot, a living game that's yeah. going to have story updates going forward? It will have an end eventually, 
but it's to accommodate for characters being introduced yeah. down line. I'm imagining it'll be more episodic I, in that I, sense. I like the idea of it being like a self-contained story in the campaign for now. And then they have, with each new character they release, they also do like story DLC, which inc- uh, increases the story to kind of tell their tale as well. One thing I'm really curious about with that one, though, um, is a lot of the characters in Overwatch come from either the Overwatch or the bad guys who fight against the Overwatch. There's some neutral characters. There are some neutral characters, but there are both good and bad characters who you can play as, so I'll be interested to see if Overwatch 2 has multiple story modes, one where you play as the Overwatch and the good guys, and if there's also one where you could play as those bad heroes who are not a part of Overwatch. That would be interesting, because an old game that I did play before... A Transformers game, you played as the Autobots, then you played as the Decepticons, which was the funnest part of the campaign, and then you went back to the Autobots and fixed what the Decepticons did. Sure. Overall, that was just a great game, and sadly there weren't any other good Transformers games, yeah, in my I opinion. I think the last good one was Onslaught. Is that the one you were playing? It's the one that no, had like, was... the cel-shaded graphics? No, it was War for Cybertron, actually. The cel-shaded graphics one was actually really good, but that was more of it being to the comic book side of things. Yeah. Well, before we move on, I just want to touch on one other thing. I believe we have some mail and corrections to go Oh, over. that is very true. So we actually have gotten two emails since our last episode, our episode on cryptids, for those of you who do not remember what our last episode was. So let me pull up our email real quick. So first email we have gotten, oh, it's a continued email from Hana, our regular emailer. Let's see what this one says. Mothman, again. God damn it. Are you done with this? This you... evil, get it out of here. Why? Why does Mothman continue to plague our lives? On a lighter note, we also have an email from, uh, I apologize if I am mispronouncing this. It seems to be Koi? Koi. All right, Koi. So you have an email that says that you're currently listening to our Toy Story 4 episode. You're a wee bit behind schedule, Koi, but we'll forgive you in like six months when you actually hear this one, I assume. But you say that we were commenting on that one guy who never gets high fives, but apparently he does get one at the very end, picks our title card. Yeah, I guess... Correction accepted, we were mistaken. Combat Carl, as his name is, while he never gets a high five during the film, there's a post credit scene where he manages to get a quick little high five from Duke Kaboom. Yeah. Duke Kaboom takes the place of the Pixar lamp, crushes the eye, and Combat Carl shows up. Duke Kaboom just holds up his hand, and Carl is all too excited. Which, to be fair, up to this point, I felt sad for Combat Carl, but he's just like. They're high-fiving over murder right there. Yeah. There's no way around it. That's a murder. Also, let's throw in a little thing. We've all acknowledged right now how Koi was right to call us out for being wrong. Let's now take a second to comment on the fact that post-credit end title cards are not a part of the film. We were right when he said he does not get a (laughs) high-five. Post-credit scenes are never considered canon. It wasn't so much he got a high-five, more so that he got an accomplice to murder. Exactly. So... Thank you very much for participating in the conversation, Koi. You're wrong. I assume you're also a very handsome individual, but you're also wrong. Just accept that fact and move on. Is this a shame you won't hear this for like three months if he's yeah. going at the rate he's going currently? Uh, speaking of which, uh, happy Chinese New Year. <laughs> well, getting into the meat of things now. Obviously, our episode for today, we're going over Harry Potter. We're sticking primarily to the original story, the original books, 
the, the legend of Harry Potter and such. Yeah. yeah, the actual Harry Potter story, not the whole Wizarding World story. We might end up touching a little bit on the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them saga, but we're not going to be focusing on that. We yeah. also might touch on the abomination that was the Cursed Child, but we're going to try not to because it'll make me sad the more I think about it. Now, before we get into the topic, there's something I want to go over. There is the Pottermore... T- oh, well, it's not Pottermore. Oh, it's Wizarding World now. Yeah. But the tasks that you can find out which house, wand, Patronus, all that stuff. I'm curious to see what you guys are going into this. To get, like, a feel for your opinions on things. I'm going to be real interested if we got the same for multiple of these quizzes. And then it's just going to invalidate this entire podcast because we're all going to be talking from the same perspective. Well, first, let's start with the big one. What's your house? Matt? All right, my house is... Hufflepuff. Okay, so we're not all the same. I am a Ravenclaw. Oh, lucky. Oh, I'm Hufflepuff all the way. All right, there we go. Okay. I can see I'm outnumbered, and we'll prove you guys wrong repeatedly over the course of this podcast. Well, I I just want to preface this with, uh, never been an evil wizard in Hufflepuff. True. Uh, I just want to preface this with, there's only ever been one evil wizard in Ravenclaw, and he had Voldemort's face coming out the back of his head, and he does not fucking count. I don't know, for sure he counts. And, uh, Curl's a piece of shit. I accept that fact. Uh, and then for the next one... The Patronus is another quest that you get. Yep. yep. My Patronus was the St. Bernard dog. Ooh. I had a fox. Oh. I had a husky. Ooh. Oh. Which is also funny when you consider the school I went to. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. School we all, or we went to, Matt did not go to the same school. But Matt hung out at the school to do D&D and nerdy shit like that. Alright. Uh, now the most important question of all. Who has the longest wand? Okay. So my wand is 12 and a quarter. Mine is 13 and three quarters. Damn yes. What do you got, Matt? 11 and three quarters. Also, my wand just described as slightly springy with unicorn hair. <laughs> Mine's uh, ebony wood with unicorn hair core, <laughs> and it's supple and flexible. Wait, so to clarify, you have an ebony wand that's 12 and a quarter inches long and supple? And flexible. Don't and forget flexible. the flexible. And flexible. Oh, that's... Phenomenal! Thank you very much, J.K. Rowling, for allowing me to know this information about my friends. <laughs> How would you describe your one, Matt? Uh, slightly springy flexibility. And made and of what type of wood? Larch wood with Ooh. unicorn hair core. Larch. What was your core again, Keith? Unicorn hair. Okay, so we all have unicorn hair wands. That's oh. fascinating. All right. Uh, and also, mine was Rowan wood for anyone who is interested in that information. <laughs> Size isn't everything, guys. <laughs> It's not the size of the wand, it's the magic it casts. I mean, I guess that's true, fair enough. And I've got the flexibility to cast anything. So, now that we all have that out of the way, we, we kind of <laughs> get an idea. we had our discussion about our wands, we kind of <laughs> have, have an, an idea. We <laughs> wand measuring contest. <laughs> where we'll stand on some things moving forward. So, the Harry Potter series, uh, obviously it's the seven book series. We got Sorcerer, Philosopher's Stone, depending on where you're from. This yeah. is kind of the introduction to the world. We find out about... Hogwarts wizards, just kind of what they do. It's relatively light. It's got your standard children's book, kind of like the bad guy who's doing what. Yeah. Then we get into Chamber of Secrets, which the second part adds in a bit more of the dark turns. We get our first introduction to a Horcrux in this one, though we don't know this until much later. Yeah, we don't find mm-hmm. out for three more books that that is what we saw. Yeah. This is where the world starts taking more of the darker turn, and we can start seeing the effects of Voldemort and the bigger things at play. Yeah. And that's a little bit I want to uh, touch on, the transition from the second movie to the third movie. Well, movie in general, for this particular topic anyway. Yeah, oh. between the third and fourth mm-hmm. year is when... Or, sorry, second and third year is when it started to take a much darker turn. Yeah, because... Uh, with that one, then it's Prisoner of Azkaban. That's where I feel like the the darkness of the world kind of starts showing itself. Because at first it's, oh, Sirius Black, he's the bad guy and all that stuff. And then we find out he's been in, like, in Azkaban for years or something he's he didn't do. He's been falsely imprisoned, yeah. And you can see, like, there's corruption in this world, too, and all that. 
And then my personal favorite of the story, Goblet of Fire, is next. This is just kind of showing those other schools, I guess, is the biggest thing that come out of this one, and also the resurrection of Voldemort. Yeah, Voldemort. I think that's the main point of this one, is kind of the plot of something's clearly going on, Harry's being uh, kind of a lot the same way Sirius Black was kind of framed for stuff he didn't do. Harry's also being framed for stuff he didn't do. Yeah. Although mm -hmm. a lot less seriously, instead of being framed for murder, he's being framed for wanting to participate in a death tournament. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, Order of the Phoenix is the next one. This is where it's a lot of the fallout from what happened before. Is Voldemort back is the big discussion, and Harry becomes kind of a whiny bitch. Yeah, it's... No one enjoys Harry during this book. Yeah, not at all. And, and then, finally, we move into the Half-Blood Prince. This is where the hat drops, essentially. Harry Everything goes to shit. Harry almost kills someone. It's where we find it. Harry almost kills someone. Harry kills a lot of people up to this point. What are you talking about? And then, finally, Fair. the Deathly Hollows, which, for the movies, was split into two parts. Which is the ultimate, we gotta hunt down all the Horcruxes, get rid of them, and kill Voldemort. Yeah, it's no longer focused on the school, it's now focused on the actual battle versus he who must not be named. Which, uh, for those who, pansy. <laughs> those, who going through the, <laughs> those who were going through the movies, the movies were very much split into, part one was Horcrux Adventure, part two was Battle of Hogwarts. Yeah, part yeah. two, the entire movie was dedicated to the Battle of Hogwarts. There were things cut out, but I feel like that was probably the best way to split it, yeah. but that also means that... The first part was also the boring part of the Deathly Hollows in full. Oh, well, the first part was both the boring and the angsty part. I had yeah. to watch so many teens argue with themselves during that fucking yeah. movie. It was character development of still pre-pubescent teens. It harkened back to fucking Order of the Phoenix when it was just angsty teens, except now yeah. Harry's got his angst out of the way, so now we have to watch Ron be angsty for a fucking movie. And Hermione do everything, pretty much. That's uh, no real difference. And get angsty because she has to do everything. <laughs> so all of us have read the books, I assume. Yes. Yes. Now for me, it's been a while because I read the books as they came out when I was younger. So I haven't really gone back to them extensively since. So my more fresher memories, which I to get ready for this episode, I did some listening to, or not listening, but watching the movies over again. Yeah. Uh, so I've watched the movies multiple times, read the books multiple times as well. I didn't rewatch or reread anything specifically for this podcast, but I have reread the books as of this past summer, so a couple months ago. It's all fairly fresh in my mind. Yeah, I've watched the the movies countless times, and I might not be able to recall everything right away. But as soon as I stop to think about something, like uh, how Harry got the Marauder's Map, I'm like, wait, I don't remember that. <laughs> oh yeah, now I do. And that's the thing, with the movies, since I went through them recently, there's a lot of things I noticed and picked up on which don't necessarily become things within the books themselves, but there's still things that are fun to think about. For example, going back to the first book in the first movie, one of the things that when watching it on a second time I had to think about is when Harry's getting his wand for the first time, he's just destroying the hell out of the wand shop. Yeah. Oh, does, yeah. does he go through this with every young wizard getting their wand? Because you have to think about it too. Like He's like, oh, normally you just bond with the first one. and But the fact that this happened Harry... He doesn't say that this isn't a normal thing either. So why doesn't he have like, you know, a special wand testing area in his shop? Why is Ollivander not prepared for this? Yeah, especially because like, you gotta imagine it's a huge pain in the ass for him every time where he's like, alright, you just blew up my fish bowl, fish is now dead, but let's just try four more wands while we try and figure this out. When oh, he could have best. Could have just been like, alright, how about you come into my waiting room here, which is like got nothing I care too much about. I'll bring wands to you to test, which is already what I'm doing. I'm just doing it in a safer room than the bulk of my store. Like a wand fitting room. Uh, I just imagine that he's got a couple 
troubled wands. He's trying to sell wands, but there's a couple oh. that just won't choose anyone to go. So he's got some real shitty wands that every time someone comes in, he's like, how about you try this one? Maybe take it off my fucking hands for once. Yeah, and if uh, maybe a student's trying out a wand and happens to blast one of the non-cooperative wands, eh, no real loss. Also, for a good point in the scene of the movie, Harry's pointing the wand right at Ollivander. Yeah. One wrong move and Ollivander's gone. Yeah. True. Uh, what's this one do? Avada Kedavra. <laughs> and that's not the only thing that I was thinking about, too. For example, Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Oh, that's a In the middle mess. of a busy train station, and no one ever notices? There's gotta be a better way to do that. Just like, yeah, off in the corner where hopefully no one notices. But not even in the corner, sorry. It's in, in the, the middle. middle. In the middle, between two platforms where everyone can see. People sitting on the trains. The amount of people who sit on a train and just, like, passively watch what's going on. Anytime you're doing that, you just, anytime you're sitting on a train board, you just choose a random person to fixate on and watch what they're doing. And it's people watching. It's a normal thing to do. Anyone who chooses to fixate on the wizard is going to think they're going fucking insane. Uh, And uh, And who's not going to fixate on the wizard? Their trolleys are full of huge bags of luggage and... Hooting owls. Hooting owls, cats, toads. Rats. Fucking giant black cauldrons. (laughs) And on top of that, too, this might just be more of the visual element of the movie itself, but... When he goes through the platform corner as well, or the, the middle spot, when he gets there and comes to the other end, it's just a flat wall. Yeah. So there's no indication of, hey, people are going to be running through the spot of the train station. Don't stand here. Yeah. And later on in the series, we get the concept of port keys. They could have yeah. easily used something similar. Or just, like, have the entrance to platform nine and three quarters... Somewhere else, like, put it in fucking Diagon Alley. That way you're not gonna have to worry yeah. about being seen by fucking muggles. Or someone just prank closing the gate, like Dobby did to Harry and Ron in the second movie. I guess really with the first one, where it's a lot of it is introduction to the Wizarding World. There's a lot of things like this. Like, one I never even thought of a second uh, when I was reading through when I was younger. But the game of Wizard's Chest... Why do they call it wizard's chess? It's just chess, exactly. except they with should the just pieces call it, that move autonomously. They, they should just call it chess, and then the other one should be muggle chess. Yes. Because, yeah, like, they're pictures. The pictures move, they don't call them wizard pictures. Exactly, they're just paintings. Although, if we're talking about fucking games that wizards play, there's so many things that don't make sense. Like, wizard snap, which is just snap, except the cards explode sometimes, and you just gotta learn to deal with that. So you build a host of cards out of exploding fucking cards. Why is that fun to anyone? Also, you spend like $30 on a pack of cards, because you know they're going to upsell the shit out of that, and then they explode, and now you don't have a pack of cards anymore. <laughs> it's the same reason they enjoy eating jelly beans that might be vomit, barf, uh, earwax, just definitively dead bad. body, I don't know. Although the biggest offender for leisure time activity that makes no fucking sense in the wizarding world is Quidditch. Quidditch makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. J.K. Rowling... Created a very inventive and fascinating world that captured the interest of hundreds of thousands of people. She cannot write a sport for shit. It's trash. It's so bad. Why would you create a wizarding world where all your people have special magical abilities that no one else in the world has? And then create a sport where they're not allowed to use any of that. I mean, they're flying. But even then, it's just like, that's no different from them just like playing soccer except they're flying while playing soccer. It's the wizard equivalent to NASCAR pretty much. It's like having a game of soccer except the people who are playing aren't allowed to run as fast as they want. They have to 
walk at like a brisk pace and that's all they can do and if they want to go faster they have to spend more money to get a better broom (laughs) yeah now the thing i always had an issue with quidditch is is the golden snitch rules i understand that okay the golden snitch needs to be caught to end the game you get 150 points but more often than not catching the golden snitch is what wins the game yes in fact if you go through the history like jk Rowling releases a lot of like lore stuff out there as well i think she said like only once or twice did the team that caught the snitch not win which why did you catch the snitch Exactly. There's one example in the books, and there's, like, two examples she's given outside of the books. And, like, the one example they give in the books, they even have that argument of, why did he catch the snitch? They were behind. He could do the math. It's like, yeah, he just wanted to save face, and, like, he didn't want the score to get blown up that much more before the other team scored. It's like, no, you were, like, going back and forth. Yes, they were up 160 points. You could have waited for them to score a single goal and then just tied the game with catching the snitch. Yeah. Ends in a tie is a lot better than ending in a fucking loss. Also, can I say, my, like, it's a pet peeve, and I know I'm one of the few people who cares about this, but my one of my biggest complaints about Quidditch is the way the score works, where scoring a goal with a quaffle is 10 points, and catching the snitch is 150 points. Why are they both multiples of 10? Why is it not just 1 in 15 points? Why do the... Why do you need that third digit that's always <laughs> going to be a zero? You're never going to have a score where it's not a zero as the last digit. Why do you care about the last digit? Well, I gotta say, one of the things I do like about Quidditch is when they bring out the bludgers. Okay, that is a thing that should be involved in more sports. Like, if if in soccer there was also two players in each team who had dodgeballs and they were just pelting them at people on the other team. <laughs> no, to be they bring out a big locked case and just undo the locks, open it, and run. Well, here's the thing at the same time, too. They have spells in this world that could stop those bludgers from being like that when they're not in use. But they decide, fuck it, we're just going to put them in a box and leave them there. Yeah. And the box is going to be rumbling the entire time because these bludgers are trying to get out. Rather than just, like, enchanting it for the game and then disenchanting it. Nope. Redo it every single time. Now, uh, on the, to be fair to Quidditch, though, I think if we only take into account the Harry Potter storyline, we have a very negative view on Quidditch. Because Harry seems to be cursed with this sport because every goddamn time he's involved with Quidditch, horrible stuff happens. Yeah. The first time he's getting cursed. The second time, I believe it's also cursing. The third time, it's a dementor. The second second time, time, it's the bludger gets cursed by Dobby. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cursed to follow him only. Yeah, it's cursed twice. And then Professor Lockhart uh, makes him lose all his bones in his arm. (laughs) Yeah. You can't have broken bones if you don't have bones. Third time, it's the Dementors. Yeah. Fourth time, uh, fourth year, there is no Quidditch because of the Triwizard Tournament. Instead, there's a dragon. Instead, there's a dragon. Fifth year, Harry's just banned from playing Quidditch by Umbridge. But at the same time in fifth year, he goes to the Quidditch game at the beginning and it gets burnt down by Death Eaters. (laughs) Yes. Right. Sixth book... I don't remember any Quidditch... Oh, it was sixth year was the year he was the captain of the Quidditch team. Yeah. And it's overall uneventful for the most part yeah. because it's a lot of Weasley, uh, Ron Weasley getting the... It's sh- pretty much Harry Potter and the Weasleys play Quidditch. Yeah, it's Weas- uh, Ron Weasley getting the piss taken out of him for sucking so bad at Quidditch. And yeah, he gets good by the end of the year, but uh, it's just painful. Yeah, Harry Potter just cannot do anything involving Quidditch without everything going to shit. Now, uh, one other thing I think we should probably talk about just before we get too far into this, the actors that were cast in the movie versions. 
do you think there was a good job with doesn't have to be from the first movie either uh where we're kind of focusing on that at the moment but just throughout the whole series how did you feel about the performances of the actors within the movies there were some castings that i think were phenomenal and some that i was a little bit less fond of i um, really enjoyed the cast for the main characters and the teachers so i really enjoyed the casting that was for like the main three the thing i love even more than that though is how much it has like fucked with those three for the rest of their life just trying to break the image of just being a child actor who was in harry potter <laughs> yeah like for, uh daniel radcliffe has like almost immediately after harry potter was done did equus where he was naked on stage with a horse just mm-hmm. to like completely break the image he's done two separate movies where he's portrayed a nazi or a, per- a normal person investigating nazis also a swiss army person also swiss, swiss army, army man swiss I mean. army man rupert grint has had a similar experience of trying to shake that one he's recently done a film where he pretends to have cancer, or sorry, a TV series on Netflix where he pretends to have cancer just to get out of having to do work all the time. <laughs> and then Emma Watson has tried just to walk away from movies altogether and become a political activist. And it's just funny watching these three people just try and completely change their image from who they were. I, I mean, to be fair though, Daniel Radcliffe has also come out saying, he's like, I'm not going to actively try to get away from being Harry Potter. Because, like, that was a big role, but he's not stopping it from letting him try to do other things. Fair. And I think most actors eventually do come back to that point where he, he seems to have just hit it earlier. Another big example is Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill tried as hard as he could not to get typecast with the Luke Skywalker role. But eventually he just kind of, like, went into it. He's like, yeah, Luke Skywalker and the Joker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Other castings that I was hugely fond of. I think the Fred and George casting were phenomenal. Oh, I think yes. they were spectacular. They were my favorite characters over the entire series. Oh, yeah. They're... Even in the books, they were my favorite. But yes, the actors themselves were phenomenal in those roles. And back to that card thing, that's why Fred and George are so popular. Because they went into selling that kind of product. <laughs> oh, Exploding leverage. Snap. Yeah. I forgot what you were harkening back to. Yes, yeah. me talking about Exploding Snap. Uh, we also have other casting. Snape, McGonagall are two big ones. Yes. That really well. Now, to be fair, I didn't look into this. I don't know if it was recasting or they just got someone better at prosthetics. But Flitwick. Flitwick in the first two movies looks horrible. It's uh, I, it a different uh, casting, I'm pretty sure. It goes from Warwick Davis to someone else. I could be getting that wrong, and it might have gone to Warwick Davis. Yeah, because in the first few movies, Flitwick is just like this horrible like face mask that's like just kind of blotched onto him, and he looks horrible. But then in the later movies, Flitwick actually looks like what you'd expect Flitwick to look like. I mean, in Hagrid, he was just exactly as I pictured him when I was reading the books. Oh, definitely. Is there anyone who stuck out as being a bad casting to you? For bad casting, I can't say there's something that sticks no. out of my mind as being bad in casting. But there are some ones that are just like amazing in casting. Yeah. Not not necessarily in how they perform, but just how well they got into the character. For example, Moaning Myrtle is actually played by a 30-year-old woman at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Gilderoy Lockhart. I think oh, he yeah, did spectacular in that role. Uh, one casting that I wasn't hugely fond of was... Oh, God. Uh, Barty Crouch Jr. I, I found, like... Oh, yeah. I found now, he was not... Was that because you were distracted by the fact it was David Tennant, who was popular at this time? No. Uh, so I wasn't even fan of David Tennant as a person going into it. I kind of discovered him as his role. Yeah, I didn't um, even know who he was. It was mostly that fucking tongue thing he kept doing in role in character. Oh, that The tongue thing I was fine with, but it was more his appearance. He looked too... Like, clean and upstanding to be the villain, I guess, if that makes sense. David Tennant just wasn't my favorite casting for Brady Crouch. That's fair. Now, I I will preface by saying, 
David Tennant is actually amazing at playing oh. villains. Oh, yeah. He doesn't get enough credit for that. What is it? Purple Man from Jessica Jones? He yeah. was phenomenal at... David Tennant's just really good at playing crazy. I think yeah. he might have just over-crazed it a bit with this one. Yeah. Another... Snape is another S- big one. Alan have. Rickman's phenomenal. Now, uh, one thing I gotta point out, because I do enjoy this, and it's throughout the first couple of movies, Snape comes off to me through the acting alone as not being menacing or evil, but socially awkward, that he doesn't know how to relate to people. And that's how most of the go. Like, for example, when uh, Harry has his first Quidditch game, he walks up to him and's like, be careful, Mr. Potter. It would be horrible if something happened to you. And they're just standing there looking at each other. He's like, but Slytherin will win. And he just walks off. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you actually learn about his past in the later books and movies, and you think back to his interactions with Harry in the past, it does make sense. Because, like, he was the awkward student back in school, and he was picked on by Harry's father. Yep. He hates Harry's father, so he's... I mean, to be too... fair, James Potter was an asshole. True. James Potter was a fucking But dick. because of that, he's inclined to, at first, hate Harry even more. Oh, yeah. Well, so, that, that even gets revealed, too, is because Harry looks more like James, just some of the eyes that he has from Lily. Yeah. And at the same time, he has James's attitude. Yes. <laughs> to be fair, um, there's... So... Alan Rickman, like, did several interviews uh, where he was talking about the role of Snape and how he initially didn't want to do the role of Snape. And then he had, like, a private sit-down meeting with J.K. Rowling where she kind of outlined the future of the character. And that was kind of what made him realize, oh, this is the kind of character who I can actually enjoy playing. And so he agreed to actually play the role of Snape after hearing a bit about the future, which is why his acting seems very well informed from the beginning. Because at first... He just seems like a very two-dimensional character. Okay, he's very cynical and hates Harry. Also, but that being said, I'm not sure how much I buy that. Not that J.K. Rowling would tell Alan Rickman the future of Snape when I think only the third book was out at the time of the yeah, first Yeah, and, and the whole rumor that he knew the ending of Snape's character and, like, the twist, that, that was already proven that it wasn't true. Yes, he, he admitted that he's like, yeah, J.K. Rowling never told me that. Yeah, She gave me an idea of what I should feel as the character, but nothing beyond that. Yes, because beyond anything else, J.K. Rowling didn't even know that back then. Yeah, no. It's very clear reading the books. She had no fucking clue where it was going in the beginning. She had like a basic idea yeah. of this is where I want it to go. Oh, yeah, I would definitely say she had ideas because, again, where I've watched all the movies back to back over the last week or so, there's a lot of foreshadowing and continuity things that are really hard to like notice if when you're watching that far apart. Uh, for example, one thing I caught really quickly, the conductor at the train station every year is the same actor. It's the same guy in all of it. <laughs> So there's a nice little continuity that wasn't actually needed. At the same time, there's a lot of like little neat things that happen here and there, like just foreshadowing and stuff. For example, uh, Quirrell, throughout the whole first movie, just refuses to t- get in any physical contact with Harry yeah. yep. actively. Snape, throughout most of it, it's pretty obvious he's not the bad guy. It, even Almut, when I was reading through it, everyone who started off assumed Snape was bad yeah. for at least the first two books. But then after that, I never suspect a Snape for anything. No. No. Like, yeah, the first two-ish books, it still seems like Snape's clearly got some sort of troubled past, and he's clearly a problem, and why is he employed at Hogwarts? And then, like, by the third book, it's just very clear that Snape's actually a good guy, and it's weird that people continue to not trust Snape. Well, the thing I always found funny to the end of it, too, is you could, okay, you can make the argument either way that Snape could be bad or good up till the end of Half-Blood Prince. Yes. But people still had an issue that, oh, Snape's evil after that, when Snape could have easily killed Harry Potter multiple times up to this point and never acted on any of it. Yeah. Yeah. You even, like, have the, like, the one that always, people always point to is, like, his interview, or the conversation you hear him having with uh, Narcissa Malfoy at the beginning of the Half-Blood Prince, where he's talking, or Narcissa Malfoy and Bellatrix and Strange, 
where he's talking about how he's always been on the Dark Lord side and here's his proof. They're like, why didn't you kill Harry Potter? And he's like, I was working at a school underneath Dumbledore. It'd be very dumb of me. And people are always like, see that right there? He's been cleverly playing everyone the whole time. And it's like, no, he's cleverly playing Bellatrix Lestrange like a fucking fiddle right yeah. now. That is what's going on. <laughs> Which, uh, on another point, Bellatrix is probably the most dangerous character in the series, even more so than Voldemort. Because Voldemort has the point in the story where every interaction he has with Harry, he loses. There's yes. not like a break even. He loses multiple yeah. times. Bellatrix always breaks even at the very least. Yeah. For example, when they get out from the Malfoy Mansion, she kills Dobby. When yeah. uh, they have their fights, like every fight before that, they have to yeah. run from her. She never gets beat. When she, they run from her. When they're fighting well, in the Ministry in the third movie and the third book, when the Death Eaters are retreating, she fires one last spell and kills Sirius Black. Yeah. That's even before they start retreating. She kills Sirius Black, then Dumbledore arrives, and yeah. that's what causes everyone to retreat. And even then, she, like, stands by Voldemort's side while he's fighting until the very last second. And then she's like, oh, nope, I'm going to get out of here now because this is clearly going to go either way. Yeah, there's, there's definitely the point in the series, like, I think Bellatrix is scarier than Voldemort. Yes, yeah. because Voldemort, sure, he's the more evil villain, but he has a plan. He's logical. Bellatrix is not logical. She's just downright insane and crazy, and you cannot predict what she's going to do. Also, more to Keith's point... Bellatrix killed way more characters that we actually care about than fucking Voldemort ever did. The only, like, characters that we actually see Voldemort kill, the old man from the beginning of Book 5. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the old man from the beginning of the Triwizard Tournament, the Goblet of Fire. Uh, that other guy that sells wands. The guy who sells wands. Uh, Flashback. Gregovich, uh, Gregorovich. Yeah. Uh, Cedric. Uh, Cedric and Bertha Jorkins, maybe, but I think that's also heavily implied that it was actually Wormtail who... Actually killed the final or made the final blow. I mean, I guess we also have to say he does kill Mr. and Mrs. Potter, but yeah, like that we, also we only see his hand in a flashback pointed at Harry. that one. I I'm not even willing. It to wasn't count. we weren't emotionally invested at that point. No. Yeah. So really, the ones we see him kill are three characters we don't care about, and Cedric Diggory, Bellatrix caused me so much emotional trauma. She killed fucking Dobby, which in the movies had no emotional payoff because they didn't build up Dobby as a character. No, he only shows up, I believe, in Prisoner of Azkaban, briefly in Order of the Phoenix, so or Half-Blood Prince, and then part one yeah. of Deathly Hollows. Because he was too expensive to animate him into all the movies, so yeah. they just didn't put him in. Whereas in the books, he's throughout the entire series, from the second book on until his death. He's just in every book, so his death is way more emotionally impactful. He, she also kills Sirius Black, She's also responsible for the torture of Neville's parents to just tit for tat with fucking what happened to Harry's parents who nobody cares about because, as we've already said, James Potter, kind of a dick. Yep. Yeah, Bellatrix just has so much more emotional impact on the story than fucking Voldemort ever does. Uh, now, I, I want to briefly go back to actors as well because we did miss an important casting that we're going to get into a very possibly controversial conversation. Dumbledore. So there's the two actors. There's two yeah. Dumbledores. There's the first Dumbledore, and then there's the second Dumbledore after the first Dumbledore dies after uh, the second movie. Yeah. So, was the Dumbledore casting good on both of them? And which one do you think did better for the role of Dumbledore? I, I liked them both in different regards. The first Dumbledore very much suited more the wise old headmaster. Oh, 100%. The original actor more fit what we expect with the books for what Dumbledore should be. Yeah. But yeah. then as the plot and the story began to thicken and become more dark, the second actor we got for Dumbledore certainly fit the character a lot better. He definitely brought a lot of stuff to the role. Because that. he certainly felt like at that time more of a powerful wise wizard. Yeah. 
Yeah, I definitely... I From my perspective, the first Dumbledore had a lot better of, like, the professor role down, whereas yeah. the second Dumbledore felt more like the kind of wizard who could actually wield magic super yeah. powerfully. And who we started to learn was not all that good in his past. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, Dumbledore, there's multiple parts to him. There's the, of course, the wise, caring, professor, fatherly aspect. But then there's also... Dumbledore is also very tactical. And he will make hard decisions, even cold decisions, knowing what needs to be done later on. Yeah. As we know, he knew for the longest time Harry Potter had to die at the end, but he still went down that path. Yeah, mm -hmm. knew Harry Potter had to die. Fucking, even Aberforth goes so far as to say, like, don't listen to what Dumbledore tells you, it will only get you killed. He's a cold, calculating man who cares not for the people around him. And, like, Harry's like, you're wrong, he's actually desperately broken up about what happened to you and your sister. But also, like... Aberforth's not entirely wrong. Dumbledore's a very cold, calculating man who does what it takes. So I think both both sides of it, they brought very key elements to Dumbledore. But I can see where people would get on either end of it about why one was better uh, than the other. Because they didn't have the other element. It's like the Ian McKellen Dumbledore wasn't very kind or caring in most yeah. of his per, uh, performances. It was like, it's like that old... Peter Parker Spider-Man thing again. Yeah. Like, Tobey Maguire had the good Peter Parker side down, but then the next actor they got had the good Spider-Man side I'm just down. gonna interject real quick so we don't get hounded on this in the emails. Ian McKellen did not play Dumbledore. Uh, Ian McKellen was fucking Magneto. He yeah. was not, never Dumbledore. Uh, I have oh, to... no. Oh, damn it, who is it? No, I, I did hear that mistake several times before. He was played by Richard Harris and uh, Michael Gambon. Oh, okay. Richard Harris in the first two and Michael Gambon in the later ones. Yeah. Yeah. Never Ian McKellen. Just don't <laughs> no. send us fucking emails about this. I do not want to hear it. <laughs> I got him confused with another wizard. Yes. <laughs> fucking Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think they were both fantastic. I also think they were better for the movies they had. Because the first couple movies, it's a lot more of Dumbledore just kind of quietly providing advice at the end of the movie and never at any other point in time. Yeah. yeah. And, and I cannot picture the second Dumbledore we got saying, alas, earwax. Yeah, no, I can't picture him being the kind of quiet... I can't picture Michael Gambon's being the quiet kind of Dumbledore. Yeah, but I also can't picture the first Dumbledore having that showdown in the Ministry of Magic with Voldemort. Yeah. No, no, I think they no. I think they fit very well into the roles that they happen to have. To the point where, like, I know a lot of people, when they first watched the movies, didn't realize Dumbledore changed between movies, and only upon rewatching was like, oh wait... That's a completely different fucking guy. Yeah. It's definitely one of those characters, as I was saying, like, there's so much to him that with the actors they had, neither one could really portray to the full oh. extent of the character. So I know we said we weren't going to touch on this, but there is a third <laughs> Law, Dumbledore yeah. actor, Jude Law. Now, where does he rank within the Dumbledore? I actually, uh, just briefly talking, I am very impressed with the Jude Law performance of Dumbledore. I think he fits very well into that kind of younger, more tactical Dumbledore. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. do we get all of our actor opinions out of us? Uh, do we have any more we, we want to touch on? We didn't talk about Malfoy yet. That's true. I... Like, the the actor they chose for him certainly fit the character. The actor was good. The issue with Malfoy, though, especially if you want to talk about the movies, is he didn't actually have that much screen time past the first few. No. He kind of yeah. just, he, oh, just like Dobby, he kind of disappears through the middle of the story. And then comes back at the end, and we're supposed to have that payoff of him essentially siding with Harry when we didn't have the build-up to it. There's also was, like, several scenes uh, that were cut that, like, there are deleted scenes from uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2, where, like, when Neville first, like, stands up against Voldemort and is fighting against him, he drops his wand at one point, and there's a deleted scene 
where Malfoy runs over, grabs his wand, and tosses it to Neville to allow him to continue to fight against Voldemort. And it's just like, if that scene had remained in, it wasn't even like a big shot where like they focused on him doing that. It was just kind of like in the background you can see it doing. That would have been a great scene to keep in. That would have been a great payoff for the Malfoy character, but also I can kind of understand why they cut it because it feels weird after Malfoy literally just sided with Voldemort to save his own life. Moving into another topic, what I want to go about is the plots of each individual book. There's a lot to go over, but each book focuses on a central story. Yeah. Uh, and there's definitely some room for discussion on how effective some of these plots were. For example, uh, to start off with an easy one, getting the Philosopher's Stone from all the traps. Yeah, that was... I, an... I, I enjoyed that one just because it kind of allowed each of the main three to kind of show their strengths. Where, oh, like, yeah. the well, first... in the book, in the movie... They took out the whole potion aspect. Yeah, I, know, fair, I was so annoyed about that. They, each of the different tasks in the dungeon was based on each of their professors that they had in that first year. Mm-hmm. They completely neglected Snape's trial, which would have been perfect because at that time they still thought Snape was the one they were chasing through the chambers. Well, they neglected both Snape's trial as well as Quirrell's trial. Like, that was an oh, important yeah. thing to know, was Quirrell also created a trial. So, to go back, in the books there was... There was Fluffy the three-headed dog. That was, there was Hagrid's. Fluffy. Then there, there was the, the herbology teachers. The devil snare. Yeah. Then we go on from that Flitwick's to the flying keys. Flying keys to the chess game, which was by McGonagall. Uh, McGonagall transfiguring stuff. From that, we go to the next one, which was the giant troll, which was Quirrell's that right. got knocked unconscious. And the final one is Snape's potions logic puzzle which wasn't even like anything to do with potions it was purely just regular. wasn't the potions earlier because i thought the potions no, had... the potion was supposed to be the last one before the chamber that had the stone okay because in my mind i seem to remember it was the potions went into the chest because only ron and harry went to the no. chess game wasn't no. it because hermione... harry ron and hermione went into the chess game ron stayed in the chess game because he got injured yeah harry and hermione continued on they saw the troll was knocked out yeah. went to the potions room Hermione solved the riddle to the potions they were supposed to drink. She said, okay, Harry, drink this potion to continue into the final chamber. I'll drink this potion so I can go back and take Ron back to the infirmary. All very fascinating stuff. Um, but yeah, they cut out two of the last two of those puzzles, which was a little annoying. There's also the final puzzle, which is the um, mirror per programmed by Dumbledore. Which I still yeah. love this because, like, just the scene of, you know... Oh, what do you see in the mirror? And then you see Mirror Harry, like, pat his pocket and go, shh, don't tell nobody. <laughs> yeah, and, like, the logic that Dumbledore uses is someone who wanted to find the stone to protect it, but not and, to use it. Yeah. Uh, is the only kind of person who can get it out of the mirror. Which also, like, kind of fuck you, Dumbledore, because first of all, it means if someone does get trapped in the room with uh, Voldemort, as they do, like, if you just make it so that no one can get it out of the mirror... Voldemort can't get it out, and he's not going to try and kill people to get it. Yeah. The fact that Harry got it means that Voldemort had to try to kill Harry. But also, like that means that like if Nicholas Fumel, the owner of the Philosopher's Stone, who was using it to extend his life, was like, oh, I need to store up some more potion, Dumbledore would be like, oh, that means you want to use it, so no, fuck you, <laughs> yeah. you can't have it. Well, well that's but, part of the two inherent so, issues with the first stories, like big challenges. If Harry, Ron, and Hermione don't go down there... He never gets the stone. Yeah. That's the end of the story. Yeah. yeah. The other part is these amazing puzzles to keep out, you know, the most dangerous wizard of all time, Voldemort, also solvable by children. Yes. And But I did really like those puzzles because they allowed each person to kind of show their strengths. Uh, the fluffy puzzle, it was kind of a joint effort between them. Devil Snare was clearly Hermione. She was the only one who understood how to do it. 
Also kind of showed Ron's weakness a little bit in the fact that Ron just got petrified by it. Next we have the keys one, which shows Harry's kind of flying prowess, yeah. which is the only mm-hmm. thing he's good at. Uh, <laughs> next we see the chess one, which kind of shows off Ron's capabilities, where he's very strategic and tactically minded, uh, which brings me to something I want to talk about later, but we'll get to there. <laughs> I know exactly what you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, and then we have the troll, which doesn't want to show anything, and then we get to the potions. And once again, we get to see why Hermione's great, because she has that extra muggle background, and she even points out, like, this is great, because it doesn't involve any magical skill to get past this one. It just involves simple logic that most wizards don't practice because they have magic for all their problems. Which yes. is a, a plot that moves a lot forward because almost every issue seems to be Hermione giving them the solution. Even in the next one, Chamber of Secrets, Hermione is out for the count, uh, unable to participate in the end of this, but she still wrote down specifically what to do on a note for them. Yeah, she gave them the perfect solution on a note. So, uh, yes, on to the second book. It's the whole matter of something that is causing people to get petrified. Uh what is doing it and how do we stop it it's also where we get introduced to moaning myrtle because she was the first victim of this thing we just don't realize it in the time and harry spends most of this book under the assumption that it's absolutely malfoy doing this no real logic about how it's just because it's malfoy but then there's Um, also people like well it's carrie doing it because he tried to get that snake to kill that kid exactly that it's spoke to snakes and only voldemort can speak to snakes so then we go from there so Harry ends up finding the piece of paper on Hermione. It's a basilisk doing this. Uh, so that means it's just pure chance and coincidence that no one has died to it. I yeah. even love the logic of like fucking nearly headless Nick turns like a weird gray cloudy color. And like that's the equivalent. And they're like, oh, well, it couldn't have killed Nicholas. He's already dead. And I'm like, that's some beautiful logic. He <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, the cat, Miss Norris, saw it through a puddle. And yeah. then the other kid saw it through his camera. Someone threw it through Nick. And Hermione was walking around with a mirror. Because Hermione actually figured it the fuck out and (laughs) didn't want to die. So she started carrying around the mirror. So it very much so continues that trend of Harry just kind of stumbles into solutions that Hermione clearly lays out for him. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Now, uh, with the second book, there was also a lot of other things that were introduced to. We had got kind of more on that connection between the human world and the wizarding world, as well as the burrow uh, was our first introduction to that as well. Yes. Uh, The flying car, the whomping willow, all that good stuff. Now, one of my issues with the movie version of the second book and uh, from the book version is the big twist at the end is we find out Ginny's been the one that's been writing on the walls and letting the blastless out. But Ginny's not in the movie. Yeah, she's she's she, there at the beginning. She gets the journal from Lucin, uh, Lucius. And then we see her again like at, at the, the end. end. At the end. She's not there. And like that's one of the really cool parts of the Wait, no, book was, is like you see a Ginny going through this emotional trauma, but like you don't really find out any specifics because Ginny's incapable of talking around Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. because she's but so starstruck by him. Was was she one of the petrified students also? No, no, she's in the tomb of the end because she gives right, she sacrifices right. herself to save the others. Essentially, it's like take me and close the right. chamber. Yeah, and Voldemort's like, yeah, absolutely, I'll take you. Uh, you're going to be mine now. I'm going to be you, and you're going to be mine. Tom and then Mar- us and the giant snake. Tom yeah. Marvel Riddle. I am Lord Voldemort. Or, depending on the region, Elvis. Yeah, they changed up the name in all the different regions so that it could still spell it, right. I am Lord Voldemort. Like, they changed the middle name for the most of them. Like, for instance, in one of them, I forget what the middle name is, but they have to spell it just sweet Lord Voldemort instead of I am Lord Voldemort. So they change out a couple, or change out the middle name in yeah. French mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It's real fun seeing what Voldemort's name is in different languages. Oh, definitely. <laughs> just have that, which I guess kind of gives away the twist that you probably should be expecting with that yeah. name. Yeah. Uh, now, one thing that I found funny, well, uh, I'll put the on the fact that Dobby's introduced in this movie and trying to kill Harry through a good chunk of it accidentally. Well, yeah. 
not kill, but horribly maim so he can't come to school. But one of the fun things in this is at the end of the movie when Harry frees Dobby with the, with the, the sock. And he's like, oh, guess you don't have a house anymore. He tries to kill Harry Potter with a vodka cadaver in the scene. Yeah, yeah. Dobby steps in, but Malfoy full on tries to, uh, sorry, to clarify, Malfoy Sr. Lucius Malfoy. Fully tries to kill Harry in that scene for freeing his house. <laughs> Which, the, the funny thing too is, at this point, we don't know what a vodka cadaver is. We, we don't learn anything about it yeah. up to this point. So we don't find out until retroactively later on when we find out. So I was like, wait a second. But they were, they were just about... walking out of Dumbledore's yeah, they, office uh, too. Like, Harry asked to keep the book from Dumbledore's office. He takes off his sock, puts it in the book, and then runs out the hall immediately outside Dumbledore's office, frees Dobby, and Lucius Malfoy's like, you know what? Killing Harry Potter! <laughs> I know where this is going. I'm going to deal with it now. <laughs> this kid's going to be a problem for the rest of my career, and I can earn Voldemort's highest graces for the rest of time. If I kill only him right if now. I keep this house elf. Yeah. Now, another funny thing about this too is there's ghosts running around Hogwarts, but everyone seems very spooked by the concept of like hauntings and stuff, and I don't understand why. Yeah, like they're living in a castle that has like seven different ghosts in and it. And moving paintings. And moving paintings, all this stuff. But the idea of the Shrieking Shrek, the most haunted place in all of Britain, is fascinating and horrifying <laughs> to them. <laughs> oh no, there's ghosts in there! Let's go back and hang out with a ghost at school. <laughs> or the fact that, like, you know, spooky words get written on walls and stuff like that, and where doors are being opened and closed. Like, what could that be? I wonder what it could be. Yeah. Definitely not ghosts. Those don't exist. Uh, uh, but all the ghosts at Hogwarts are all friendly. Yeah, Bloody Baron. Uh, and another thing, too. There's a scene later on in the movies where two ghosts riding horses shatter through a window that shatters, but the window stays fine. Which means we have to also accept that there's ghost glass in this world. <laughs> I, I choose to believe that every inch of Hogwarts is both actual physical properties as well as, like, ghost stone as well. That, like, ghosts can choose to fuck with or not if they want to. <laughs> There's something we forgot to mention, which I want to get back to is, because Matt said uh, when we were talking about the books earlier that, and Harry Potter almost kills somebody. Well, I want to point out by this point in the books, Harry has killed people. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to give the specific examples? Well, the, the most obvious one is when he touched Coral to death. Yeah. Melted yep. his face right to death. Which, again, Kroll knew he couldn't touch him. And and Harry just... took full advantage of that fact. <laughs> yeah. Starts joking, just touch his face. <laughs> which, I would like to say, he took the fact that he had to murder someone at such a young age well. But clearly not, because he definitely developed a taste for blood. Yeah. Uh, and on top of this, the house cup uh, is something I want to briefly touch on to before we get too far. Because uh, And how rigged as shit it is. Exactly. Because they never earned the house cup. It's always like, they're in last place going into the House Cup, and Dumbledore's like, ah, fuck it, points. Or, they're in last place going into it. So, in well, year one, they're in last place, and Dumbledore throws points at every single one of them. Now, uh, the, the fucking insane thing about this, too, is he's like, Slytherin wins! Slytherin banners come from the ceiling. But I, as being headmaster, want to give some last-minute points. And he doesn't just, like, say, like, fucking Harry Potter just gets enough points to win. He's like, oh, we're on Hermione. Oh, it's tied. What am I going to do? Neville, you get five points for standing up to your friends, I guess. Yeah. These other people stood up to Voldemort, but you know what's even more important than that and worth, like, a tenth as many points? Standing up to your friends. Here you go, Neville. Your team wins. In second year, I think they just choose not to do the host cup from what I can remember. There's, like, no big deal about the host yeah, cup. Yeah, everybody's a winner. No, the host cup happens just, it's not a, the host cup is only important, really, in the first book. Yeah, I, well, it also happens, uh, it kind of happens in the four, uh, in the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, except instead of, like, a specific host winning, 
It's just, we're gonna hang up Hufflepuff banners everywhere and honor Cedric who gave his life to the school. There's also, I distinctly remember it happening in other years, but I don't remember the specifics of what happened. I can't even remember if they even mentioned it in the like third it, It's book. just because it's not as big of a deal after that first one. The first yeah. one's like, oh, we gotta win the House Cup. Yeah, because and then it's like, fuck the House Cup, we got snakes! Oh, in, in the fifth book, essentially, Draco's given the power to take points away from other teams. Right. So Slytherin's the only host with any points left at the end of it. Uh, and then Dumbledore comes back, or Dumbledore and McGonagall both come back, and they're like, uh, how about thousands of points for the other houses and take away all the points from Slytherin, because also, fuck you. It's been rigged to shit all day, so let's just make it more rigged. I mean, that's just a constant plot of the Harry Potter series. Fuck Slytherin. Yeah. I do really like that line of, there's not, never been a witch or wizard who's gone bad who wasn't in Slytherin, when, like, we have definitive proof of Gryffindor and Ravenclaws who have gone bad that statement is just a bold-faced lie at this point. Yes, it's much more common for them to have come from Slytherin, but that is not the only host where right, people de- go It's definitely Gryffindors, Ravenclaws, and Slytherins, and then Hufflepuff is just like, I guess the students are just so like laid back and always in the kitchen that there's like never that drive to go any further than being evil. Well, I'm pretty sure it's accepted by most people that the Hufflepuffs are just like the stoners of the school, and that they live right next to the they live right next to the kitchen, so they're always sneaking in there grabbing food. They just do not care the least bit about, like, excelling at anything. And, like, to the point where, like, Cedric becomes, like, the hero of the school. And they're all like, yeah, cool, way to go, I guess, yeah. The Harry versus Malfoy in the books, Chamber of Secrets is really where that whole concept starts. And is persistent throughout the whole thing. But again, unfortunately, in the movies, Malfoy just kind of takes a backseat to everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, examples of them in Triwizard Tournament. Malfoy is the one who creates the Potter Stinks uh, badges that everyone's wearing that support Cedric and say Potter Stinks. Just to, like, have any time Harry's walking around the school while he already feels isolated because Ron's not friends with him, he gets clear signs from everyone else in the school that they do not like him, which he fucking deserves. He's a shitty person. (laughs) And, again, in the movie, that's not even touched on the fact that Malfoy made it. It's just like, everyone's got these now. Yeah. Don't even know where they came from if you didn't read the books. And then uh, where the plot actually starts showing within the Harry Potter movies and books, Prisoner of Azkaban, book yeah. three. And yes. on that note, I do want to also mention that since the plot starts to develop even more at this point, the grounds around the castle and the castle itself change significantly between the second and the third movie. Oh, definitely. Well, there's definitely, in the movies itself, there is a change from uh, the previous story up to going into Prisoner of Azkaban. It gets darker, but also this is where we start getting a change in director some casting and the such so yeah. there is a lot of shakeup at this point in the first and the second movie the castle is just a castle on a big field essentially and the whomping willow is just on some uh, gently sloping hill well it moves around yeah the uh third movie all of a sudden it's on these majestic big cliffs and it's this huge sprawling castle with various turrets and towers and it just looks all the more impressive. Another thing that also I feel changes this one is, aside from the actor of Dumbledore changing within the books and the movie, this is where we start getting a lot of Dumbledore being cryptic as hell about everything. Almost like intentionally so. Yeah, like he doesn't want to tell them the answers. Like I remember in the beginning uh, when they're all in the Grand Hall and he's giving the speech about the Dementors. He's like, you know, always be happy and use light and all that stuff. Like, he's telling you how to defeat a Dementor if you need to get you out of it. But he doesn't say, hey, students, if the thing starts trying to like suck the soul out of you, just shoot some light at it. Extract another turn on Be happy and shoot light. Just hold on to your happy thoughts. Also, the beginning of the movie is Harry also goes after blood again when he murders Marge. 
Yeah. True. I mean, in she, the book... She, she doesn't really die, In the but... book, she doesn't die. In the movies, it's never touched on again. Actually, I believe when he gets taken to the Ministry uh, after the Night Buff, uh, Night Buff's incident, yeah. it's kind of like briefly mentioned in the background, they deflated her. Yeah. Uh, she was caught on some chimney couple cities over and they deflated her and wiped your memories and this is where i i realized myself that harry can never do anything put it related because of just how things happen we also get the introduction of hogsmeade which harry potter can't go to yep yep but he does anyways and sneaks in and that's where he meets uh fred and george if i remember correctly and gets the good old marauder's map yep marauder's map to be fair, he meets Fred and George before them, but that is Yeah, when, that, right, that's how he gets into Hogsmeade. The third book is when he finds out about the map to Hogsmeade. Which, we also find out that Peter Pettigrew is in the world, and they can see him on the map as a rat, but that means that Fred and George, through all the years of looking for this, saw Ron just hanging out with Peter Pettigrew all the time. Yeah. Even in the middle of the night. In his bed. To, yeah, we thought it was just a mistake. To be fair, there are a couple things about that. First of all... In the books, it's never once said that Peter Pettigrew appears on the map. Like, that's a purely a fabrication of the movie to add a little bit more of a flair to the story. So, there are some fan theories that, like, the Marauders, uh, yeah, the old Marauders enchanted the map specifically so that only a Marauder could see a Marauder on the map. Oh. So that, that's why no mm. one ever saw Peter Pettigrew. Because they don't want someone else to use this map to track down where they are when they're out doing nefarious things. There's also the fact that, like... I don't know about you guys, but, like, if I had a map that showed me where everyone was in the world, I would not be watching my brother sleep. <laughs> no. Not at all. Uh, and then, additionally, the way the Gryffindor common rooms are, or the sleeping rooms are set up, it's a fucking tower, so it'd be really hard to tell whether or not it's two people in one bed or two people on different <laughs> levels directly on top of each other. Fair enough. Uh, that, or they just assume Ron's having constant orgies in his bed. Uh, my That's the Hufflepuff dorm, actually. That's the Hufflepuff dorm. Oh, my favorite aspect of the map, though, was definitely when Snape tried to reveal its secrets. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's all Mind your own goddamn business! Big-nosed freak. Big-nosed, greasy-haired freak. <laughs> Now, there was a lot of very questionable things I found at this point in the story. For example, the Bogarts. Now, I understand the concept of the Bogarts. Yeah. And, you know, learning how to, to defeat them. But at the same time, making all of these, like, you know, 13-year-olds in front of all their friends face their greatest fear, I don't know if it does a lot for you socially in that yeah. age. So, yeah, to clarify for anyone who somehow doesn't know what a Bogart is, a Bogart is a creature that hides itself in, like, closets and stuff. No one knows its true form. And when it's uh, presented with a human being, it sees into their mind what their greatest fear is, takes on that form, and fights them that way. So they're fighting fear itself, essentially. I just love how much it's just like, yeah, all right, Neville, what's your greatest fear in the world? Uh, the teacher at the school... Everyone immediately laughs when he says that. It's like, yeah, of fucking course they do. Why are you forcing him to admit that in front of the whole school? <laughs> yeah. Also, quick aside, uh, Ron's fear is, of course, one of the spiders because of the traumatic incident that happened yeah, the previous year. Yeah, big spider yeah. Aragorn. And when he does uh, does the ridiculous spell on it, it just gets rollerblades. Which, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make it less scary. No. It's still a giant-ass spider, and if it learns how to use those rollerblades, it now moves faster than you. Yeah. <laughs> there were some other creepy ones, like or weird ones. Like, there's the fucking snake that someone turns into a creepy-ass jacket that walks on my head. That does not help! Oh, that's, that's so much more creepy! Well, I'd rather take the snake any day. Yeah, because in the movie, Harry even walks up and he's looking up at it and he's like, like, okay, my fear just changed. Yeah. <laughs> it just stays as that for the rest of the movie. Like, um, guys, I can't move. It's gonna attack. 
Now, uh, Harry, saying, why isn't it changing? This is my fear. She turned it into my fear. <laughs> I now realize I'm, I'm fearful of something. I thought it was going to turn into Voldemort. Nope, this. This is what it is. Maybe it was. Now it's this. <laughs> and now you mentioned it, the jack box just turns into a jack-in-the-box of Voldemort. <laughs> but that was also a nice little way to hint at Lupin's transformation into a werewolf. Oh, definitely. Although, also, that movie I was quite annoyed with because that was one of the more egregious ones in my mind for shit it took out of the movie. Because there was, like, huge plot points throughout that movie of, like, Lupin teaching classes that were just kind of washed away. And it was like, Lupin teaches people how to use the spell Ridiculous. uh, And And Snape teaches the other class. and About werewolves. Snape teaches a class about werewolves. And Lupin, not in class, teaches Harry how to cast the fucking Expecto Patronum. Yeah. It's just like, ah, why don't you actually show some of the really cool lessons Lupin taught about how to fight different magical monsters and stuff? And uh, on another concept of things that they did change for this one as well, in the movie specifically, in the books, Harry doesn't really hit his angsty teen moments until a bit later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the movies, he hits it now. He gets full on angsty teen and just fuck everybody. Yeah. yeah well, he gets a lot of that whole, like... Oh, you wouldn't understand. My parents were killed by the best friend or something like that. You just, you wouldn't understand what it's like to be me. And whereas, like, in the books, that's, like, an issue for him, but he very quickly moves past it to try and do the right thing. In the movies, they certainly hammer home, like, oh, my parents were killed by their best friend. My uncle is framed for their murder. Or my godfather is framed for their murder. And I'm not allowed to go to Hogsmeade with all of you guys. (laughs) Because no one will sign my permission slip. Uh, Professor, will you sign my permission slip? You're like my guardian while I'm here at the school. No, that's explicitly not how the rules work. <laughs> You're more of a guardian than my aunt and uncle. <laughs> Maybe you should get better aunts and uncles like a piece of shit. <laughs> now, the next one is my favorite in the whole Harry Potter storyline. Goblet Fire is just by far the one I enjoy the most. I do want to point out something that was uh, pointed out to me a couple weeks ago, though. Oh? Via a video that was messaged to me. In the book... It's mentioned when Harry's name pops out of the Goblet of Fire that when he's taken aside, Dumbledore calmly approaches him and asks, How did you get your name in the Goblet of Fire? Did you put your Harry on the fire? Harry, did you put your name in the fire? He like, slams him against the wall, shakes him, lifts him off his feet. Harry's reaction makes it look like he's a victim of abuse, which I guess technically he is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this one introduces the two other schools, the Travis Cup. Yeah, really brings out... The whole, this wizarding world is a lot more massive than just England Yeah, and people up until that point were focused more on the England perspective. This gives you the idea of, like, it exists in a lot more yeah, than just it's all the over the world. Now, in this one, there's a series of infighting between the friend group. Uh, in the movie, we don't get much of it, but Harry and Ron have a falling out because his name shows up in the cup. And then afterwards, a few scenes pass, and then Ron and Harry are like, yeah, we're cool now. But in the book, that's a lot longer and it takes out. a lot, yeah. it takes a lot longer and there's a lot more of a source of contention and Hermione kind of ends up being his only friend for the longest time but yeah. like he even goes on to point out like how unenjoyable it is having Hermione as your best friend yeah. because Ron's your best friend you're having a great time laughing the whole time you do Hermi- stupid things together and no one mentions it <laughs> Hermione's your best friend you study a lot but yeah. in the books you also get the bit of the tidbit that Ron even though he's really annoyed with Harry right now Still cares about Harry enough that he actually gives a hint for Harry for yeah, the, uh, the, the underwater. Because uh, or, or it, it's the yeah, dragons, it was the dragons. And yeah. then, well, and then, wasn't it the gillyweed also? No, that's no, technically so, Moody. So that's not really right. Moody. Uh, true. So true. it's Moody is the one who most directly. So Moody gave both Ron the clue about the dragons, or Moody gave Hagrid the clue about the dragons. Yep, and then uh, uh, he gave Neville the book. 
And when Neville out. didn't figure it out, so yeah. in the movies, Neville figures out the clue and gets the gillyweed for Harry. In the books, Neville doesn't figure it out. So Moody also gives the clue to Dobby so that Dobby will give it to him. And then uh, Moody also very subtly points in a direction in the last one. And then also Imperios everyone else to ensure that Harry's the only one standing inside the fucking edge maze. Yeah. So, yeah. We find out that Harry really does nothing in this book. Mm-hmm. But it ha- it's the reason I like this one so much is it's not so much uh, a direct story. It's more of there's something hidden there and you're trying to piece it together as the story goes on. Until ultimately yeah. we get to the end where, oh, it was all a trap to get Harry Potter's blood. I I really like that one. I think it would be, I personally think it would be a little bit better if they cut out the opening scene of Voldemort killing the old man. And just like, Harry complaining about his scar hurting while also just dealing with like, someone put my name in the cup. I have no idea who or what's going on. <laughs> Which, the rules of this cup, it's a pretty iffy. It's the Triwizard Cup, but okay, fourth name. They clearly said at the beginning, anyone who's under the age of 17 can't compete. But Harry's allowed in there because his name showed up. Yep. When clearly he would have had to have cheat to go into the game. And also like, once his name's in there, he has to participate. There's no option to get out of it. There's even like, in theory, why not, if he has to participate, why not have him start every event and immediately be like, uh, I forfeit and just like walk away. Yeah, why exactly. is that not an option as well? <laughs> just stop competing. Yeah. For example, the Ron situation, I feel like the Ron argument would have ended completely if the first challenge starts and he's like, I forfeit and just yeah. leaves. So like, oh, he didn't put his name in there. Someone else must have. I'm honestly surprised that like Harry defeating the dragon didn't somehow make Ron more passionate about the fact that Harry was lying. Because he's like, oh, you said you didn't want to be in here, but clearly you've been practicing to fight a dragon and now everyone loves you even more than they Why did you to. let the dragon just eat you, Harry? <laughs> God damn it, Harry. Oh, God. Uh, so yes, that, that one I really liked. It was another one of those situations where like they cut out a fair bit from the books, but not like as egregious. The biggest complaint I have is like the maze was this huge fucking like puzzle in the books. Solved in about 15 minutes. And there's a whole bunch of like different shit going on beyond just like the competitors running around in the fucking books. It's just like, Ooh, it's a spooky hedge maze. And also there's wind, I guess sometimes. But mostly it's just Crumb going around killing people because Crumb is imperioed. Does he actually kill anyone, though? No, uh, he no. just uh, knocks uh, Fleur unconscious. And then Harry shoots off the... Oh, well, he tries to kill Fleur by, like, feeding her to the evil hedge maze. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then Harry saves Fleur's life and then tries to send off flares. Although, Cedric and Harry do, I... Looks like they kill uh, Crumb. Because in the movie thing, they just kind of hit him with it and then the hedge maze shuts on him. It's like, oh! Crumb's dead. Yep. But he does show up at the end, so I yeah. guess not. Yeah. Uh, Only so, Cedric died. So then we move on to book five, which most people agree is the worst of the books, uh, The Order of the Phoenix. It does a lot for setting up the world, and it's a very important book in the series, I would argue. Oh, definitely. That, because, that's the issue, right? But like, oh God. First of all, my biggest complaint when I was reading it as a kid was just like how long it takes for fucking anything to happen in that book. Like, the first seven chapters, they don't even acknowledge that Hogwarts is a thing that exists. And it's just Harry being angsty about the fact that his friends aren't talking to him. And then he hangs out with them and they start talking to him and explaining why they couldn't talk to him. And he just gets even more angsty as a part of it. And then we get into fucking... Oh, it goes through the books and it's just Harry being an angsty piece of shit for an entire book and no one likes him. Ah, I hate it. It's so bad. Yeah, and then there's a whole plot, like, Dumbledore won't talk to him, and he's like, why won't Dumbledore love me? Why don't you love me? Or, or the, what was it, at the beginning, uh, where the Dementors attack, too, and he ends up on trial for using spells in front of muggles. Yeah. yeah. 
he clearly saved a muggle's life. But yeah, he was a spell. Got, yeah, he was unconscious when he cast that spell. The muggle, the muggle cast... knows that he's a wizard, but he used a spell in front of a muggle. <laughs> That's true, the one that knows he's a wizard. Yeah, he cast Expecto Patronum in front of a muggle while a muggle was present. Like, first of all, Expecto Patronum is the kind of spell that has exactly one use, and that's fighting a Dementor, which is the kind of situation when or you're... Or showing al- someone where a sword is. Yeah. Uh, which is the kind of spell that you're allowed to cast if it's to save you or the Muggle's life. Two, the Muggle was his cousin who was aware of the fact that he was a wizard. Oh, it makes me so mad. Now, I, I do agree. Uh, Order of the Phoenix is probably, for entertainment's sake, the weakest of the books, but, but the most important. Most important plot. But at the same time, there's an issue I have that's even bigger with this, which becomes so much more apparent in this book. Arthur Weasley and his job. Because we get sprinklings throughout of like, oh, what does a rubber duck do? And all that stuff. But I just feel like Arthur Weasley has no understanding of what simple things should do. They're, you're wizards. You're not a different species entirely. Yeah. You know what a car is. You can't tell what a rubber duck is. You don't know how to use a train station. How are people this confused by this stuff? It's like... It's like he signed up to join the ministry, or applied to join the ministry. The ministry's like, okay, we like his skills, we can use those skills, but we have no jobs that he can do. Let's find something to keep his mind on something. So I actually have a bit of a fan theory with regards to this, which is that Arthur Weasley didn't actually start off in the Muggle Studies or whatever, like the Muggle Artifacts, Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Department. Initially, what Arthur started as was just like a generic ministry employee working his way up the ranks. However, the fan theory essentially states that when Arthur first joined the ministry was also around the time that Voldemort was first rising to power. And so Arthur was one of many young kind of employees of the ministry who got imperioed by members of Voldemort's inner circle into doing nefarious things. Arthur managed to get off scot-free for his crimes because of the fact that he was imperioed. However, him kind of having this taint on his record kind of got him shoved off of his original career track into this misuse of Muggle Artifacts department, which no one fucking cares about, clearly. Yeah. In fact, I suspect he was probably originally going to be an Auror because he's still ever so slightly involved with the Auror's department. It also explains why he has such, like, a strong distaste or distrust of Lucius Malfoy. Because Lucius Malfoy was an accused Death Theater who got off the claims by claiming he was Imperioed. And Arthur probably knows he wasn't actually Imperioed. And the fact that someone else is using the actual thing that happened to him as an excuse for why they did the things they did. That makes a lot of sense. Also, fun fact, Lucius also kind of just gets 100% outed in this movie, but in book, but no one really does anything about it. Yeah, Harry's like, Voldemort's not back, you're joking. Yeah, Harry's like, hey, Voldemort's back, these are the people that are with them. And the Ministry of Magic's like, you know what, fuck you, fuck you real bad. (laughs) Also, fuck Dumbledore. Also, fuck Dumbledore. Hey, those people that, like, the boy who lived just told me were evil, get closer to me. I want more of you involved in my life more times, because clearly you also agree. Fuck this kid. <laughs> also, just to show you how much I really mean to fuck you, I'm sending Umbridge. Yeah. So then we get into... You cannot trust a woman with that many cat photos. Go from book five into book six. Book six is kind of where we start finding out about Harry's actual fight against Voldemort. It's where we first discover about Horcruxes. Takes a long time, but we figure out exactly how many there are. There's also this whole behind the scenes of is uh, Malfoy a Death Eater? What's going on with regards to that? Now, uh, there's actually something else I want to mention about Order of the Phoenix that I had a problem with. Dumbledore's army. I'm fine with the concept, and I do know the name ends up saving their ass later, but I still think that's the stupidest thing ever to name yourself Dumbledore's army and yeah. have a list about it. 
Where that, yeah. that only goes one way when well, they're doing such a witch hunt in that situation. It's because they put Harry in charge of it. Well, no. Hermione fair, comes up with the name. Right. I think it's actually Ginny who comes up with the name because Hermione says we should just name ourselves DA as in Defense Against the Dark Arts. Because that's what they're planning on studying together. And Ginny's like, yeah, but instead of calling ourselves DA, let's have DA stand for Dumbledore's Army. Because that's what they're all afraid that we're going to do. Ginny's the one who causes all these fucking problems. Also, if you want to get away with something, you don't name it that thing. You're like, oh, it's the Dueling Club or the Tea Party Club or something like that. Oh, everyone's afraid that we're going to start murdering hobos, so let's call our club the Hobo Murdering Club. (laughs) That's not going to piss anyone off or get (laughs) some more scrutinization on us. Yeah. Uh, So... Yeah, why don't they just name themselves, like, the fucking Tea Party Club, and then go to Harvard and be like, hey, we're forming a Tea Party Club. Cool? And she's like, yeah, cool. <laughs> until the rule comes in that no clubs. <laughs> yeah, until the rule comes in that no clubs. Also, one of the rules is literally, Umbridge is now the headmaster. That's not a rule. That's a change of management. Yeah. So, we go through that. Uh, book six, it's Malfoy's up to something. Uh, Harry thinks he's his Death Eater. No one else fucking believes him. Uh, also, I, I just want to give credit to Slughorn's murder house. Yes. Yes. That was phenomenal. Him, like, very quickly whipping a muggle home into a place where he got murdered. <laughs> no one will look for me now. Yeah. No one will look for me if they think I'm dead. So we go from that six, a fascinating story-wise. It's not super fascinating. Like, it's not the most exciting movie to watch. All right. This is definitely the ramp-up. Yeah, it's the kind of preamble yeah. to book seven. Oh, yeah, and I... Before we get on any further, I just want to go back to Umbridge for a moment. Harry also came really close to killing Umbridge, luring her out into the Forbidden Forest. Oh, he tried to get her killed by knowing that Getting she Getting her came. taught by centaurs. Although also, that was once again, not Harry. That was Hermione's plan through and through. Yeah. She was walking through loudly trying to get the centaurs' attention so she, they could fucking kill But Harry yeah, at was the same time all right with that. Hey, I was going to say, I don't think Harry would have opposed if he knew that was the plan. Oh, no, no Harry would have been fully on board, but... That was 100% Hermione's plan, and in she fact, was not telling Harry. If that situation played out a bit differently, I could see Harry's like, hey, that's a cool bow, can I use that for a <laughs> Oh, here, let me see that. Uh, and one right through the temple of Umbridge. You see, I couldn't have killed her. I don't use muggle weapons. <laughs> I use my wand. Also, why has no one ever used a gun in Harry Potter? Well, partially because of the time period it takes place, but also, I don't know. Don't Guns were definitely a thing in the 90s. Yeah. They just weren't as prevalent of a thing. Regardless. Because uh, people thought they could cast a Vata Kedavra faster than he could pull a trigger. A Vata Bam. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that works out. <laughs> uh, so yes, book seven's where the battle happens. Yeah, Harry spends the first three quarters of the book hunting down Horcruxes, destroying them, and then doing the one-on-one battles with now, Tam. Tom. This is where I feel there was a detriment in the last book to kind of cause it to feel that way, where it was like so slow and boring for a good chunk, is the fact that they saved... Half the Horcruxes for the last book. Yeah. They yeah, didn't... they got rid of two before the last book. They could have easily, like, got... He has seven Horcruxes and there are seven books. They could have easily gotten rid of, like, three of them in the first book just to, like, cut down the time of the last book. Have two of them get rid of in the final battle like they did Nagini and Harry Potter. And then they only have to get rid of two in the first half of that book instead of the fucking three of the slog that they go through. Yeah, yeah and I'm even fine with the aspect of there's a Horcrux hidden in the school. Yeah. Nagini uh, uh, is also a Horcrux. It's just there in the fight as well. And then obviously Harry himself and Voldemort have to die. So having those, you know, technically three for the last book, I'm perfectly fine with. But when it's like... Also the Locket and Helga Hufflepuff's cup. Yeah. That just added too much runtime. I think it would have been a lot more enjoyable if, like, 
The seventh book was them running around trying to find out more about these Horcruxes, what they could be, only for them to land on the conclusion of, oh, it has to be at Hogwarts. That's the only place exactly. left. Exactly. Having sense. it, the, yeah. the whole book is about trying to find, you know, oh, we know that Nagini is one of them and that there's another one. Where is it? Oh, it's uh, in Hogwarts. We have to go back to Hogwarts. You should tighten up that first half. You still have the scenes, but you don't have as much running around mindlessly. Yeah. This also kind of feels like, oh, the Hog or the Horcruxes weren't really fully idealized as a thing until the end of the series. Oh, so yeah. she didn't I, really have any way to put them in. I don't think she planned the Horcruxes out until maybe book five. I, I don't think she had any concrete plans until book six. I think she retroactively went back and was like, oh, the book, yeah, I'm going to make that one of the Horcruxes just to save myself. I mean, it fits really well, and I don't want to say she made everything up, because there's a lot of cool things that kind of give nods and hints towards oh, things. Yeah, she probably had for example, ideas. One of the cool things that a lot of people overlook is that when they're in the Ministry looking for the prophecy, it's not Harry that finds the prophecy. It's Neville that finds the yeah. prophecy, and Harry is there with him. So the whole idea that people think, oh, it's Harry, but Neville is the one to find it, and you need the person that the prophecy is about to essentially find the prophecy yeah. about them. Because at the time, the prophecy was absolutely about Voldemort, and either about Harry or about Neville. It could have fit either one of them. And Voldemort just chose to make it about Harry. That one is really fascinating to me. There's also, like, other things that were clear signs she had planned some stuff out. Like, if you watch her original sketches of the Hogwarts grounds, there's two, like, key details on there. Like, before she had written any of the books, she had, like, sketches of what Hogwarts would look like. She had drawn in the Whomping Willow before she had written anything about the books. So she clearly had at least some part of the story planned yeah. around yeah. the Whomping Willow. She also had drawn the giant squid beforehand, which... Feels a little bit less flushed out because that never really became a thing. No, but no, just mentioned. No, I'd completely forgotten about it until you brought it up. Uh, on top of this, there's a few other good moments I find, but also some confusing ones when it comes to the Deathly Hollows. For one, obviously it's supposed to be a big emotional scene of Hermione wiping her parents' memory, but I don't see how that's best for them because yeah. now they don't know that they're at risk. Yeah, and at the same time. It doesn't matter that they don't know who she is. Voldemort can still use them against Hermione. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. First of all. They don't know anything's after them, but, like, she's done nothing to make it so that other people won't go after them. We already know the Fidelius charm, the secret keeper charm, is a thing that exists. Why not just, like, tell them to live in a house, contain that secret within herself so that they can't use her parents to get to her. They would have to use her to get to her parents to get to her, at which point they don't need her parents anymore. Exactly. Just, I feel like it makes them more of a risk for them when you come to that. Yeah. They don't know anything's coming for them. They don't know why anything would be coming for them. They don't even know that magic exists anymore. However, everything about the magic world still could go get to her through that. Just a little bit of unneeded... You're supposed to be the smart one, Hermione. Unneeded fluff. Uh, and when it comes to the movies as well, the possession of the Elder One also gets a bit tricky if you're going through the movies alone. Because we obviously know that you have to beat the owner of the wand in a duel or kill them to get the wand. Yes. Yes. So one of the big plot points that hinge in uh, Deathly Hollows is the fact that Voldemort thinks that he has the wand now, but then he realizes, oh, Snape, you killed Dumbledore, so I need to kill you to get the wand, when in fact it's actually Malfoy disarmed Dumbledore, so he got the ownership without knowing it. And the thing about, so yes, Malfoy cast a spell disarming Dumbledore, so that's how he got ownership of the Elder Wand in that moment. And that's why it hasn't worked for anyone else, because Malfoy has ownership of the wand. However, the way that Harry actually gets ownership of it is not by disarming Malfoy, but by literally ripping the wand out of his yeah. hand. Well, that is technically yeah. disarming him. But, like, but uh, I believe in the book, 
after Dumbledore dies, doesn't Harry have a fight with Malfoy that he wins? Yes. Which is how he gets it. But that doesn't happen in the movie. So we don't actually yeah. get a fight with, Malf- uh, with Malfoy until they're in the Malfoy Manor. And yeah. then Harry literally takes, not the Elder Wand, but Malfoy's actual wand, rips it out of his hands. Yeah. That's the only fight we get with yeah. him. And then, like... It's and not Harry, like, a starter fight or anything. He just walks up, he's like, give me that wand. And then Harry, like, pins his whole, like, belief that he's going to win on the fact that he currently possesses the wand that previously disarmed the Elder Wand. He's like, the Elder Wand's gonna recognize its new master in the form of this wand, so hopefully it recognizes that I am the master of this wand. And through seven, uh, seven shades of Kevin Bacon, it finds out that I am its owner. <laughs> Wait a second, that's the wand that belonged to Malfoy. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he didn't actually need the Elder Wand to defeat Voldemort, though. He just needed no. Voldemort not to own the Elder Wand. Exactly. So, I don't think it mattered who had it. It just was pure luck that Harry was the owner, so that's why it was weaker against Harry as well. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of that, the Deathly Hollows just kind of feels like it's very shoehorned into this one. And I'm not even sure why it was important, aside from the fact that the resurrection stone gives Harry like that farewell at the end, and the cloak he had all this point was also one of them. Yep. Yeah, yeah, which... it was. That one also felt like a little bit of a retconny moment where it was like this cloak that he's had since the beginning. Like she never discusses other invisibility cloaks existing, except for the fact that Ron's absolutely heard of them. And then like we're meeting with Xenophilia's love good, and he's like, "Ah, oh, but you know that this would be the real cloak of invisibility because while those are relatively common." Here are all these details about invisibility cloaks that we all know and accept to be true that wouldn't possibly ac- yeah. be accurate like for this regular new one. Regular invisibility cloaks, they lose their effectiveness over a short period of time. Spells will hit them and cause them to break down. That's not true of this one, and it's just like... I don't know about that because every goddamn person seems to know when Harry's around in invisibility cloaks. They never, the co- they never cover their ankles. <laughs> like, what was it? Dumbledore, uh, I remember in... Uh... I think it was Chamber of Secrets when Hagrid's getting taken away mm-hmm. and Dumbledore's also getting taken away and he's like, and I just want to let anyone know that if they need help, all they need to do is ask. Although at the Wait. time, at the time, that certainly felt more like he believed that Harry, Ron, and Hermione were all there. And also, well, also Hagrid got in on the joke because he actually knew that fucking... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just don't want anyone to know, follow the spiders. Yeah, also, uh, in that same vein of asking for help, Follow spiders. That's a fun thing you can do for an afternoon. <laughs> or Snape is like of uh, when the, in the first one when he's uh, interrogating Quirrell at the beginning, he like he's like something's around. Yeah. So yeah, definitely the Deathly Hollows felt a little tacked on in the end. Another part when it comes to just some of the plot points is when they have to break into Gringotts. Yeah. Where they take the form of Bellatrix, and there's the whole scene in the movie where it's like, "We need your one for verification." He's like, well, I don't need to give him one. They have Bellatrix's wand at this time. <laughs> what is so difficult about showing the wand? Yeah, I don't know why they get so hesitant to show the wand. But also, like, as Harry, like, realizes as they're starting to pass it, like, they know Bellatrix lost her fucking wand. She would have reported that shit almost immediately. So then we find out Harry's not only above, not above murdering people, he's also not above using the other forbidden spells. He starts imperialing the shit out of all, everyone <laughs> yeah. around him. Which eventually leads to that man's death, so I'm just going to chuck it up as one more Harry Potter murder. Yeah. Yeah, that guy gets killed by the dragon down below. (laughs) Because he thinks he's ringing the bell, but he's not. Alright, so this kind of brings me a little bit to something I wanted to talk about, which were several different kind of fan theories about Harry Potter. I do have one other thing I wanted to mention before we get to the fan theories. Go right ahead. So, this is more so to the Resurrection Stone itself. 
Yep. And Harry's final, final conversation with Dumbledore. So it's debated a lot whether that scene is real or not. Now, personally, I always thought as it was just a continuation of the Resurrection Stone, letting him talk to people on his near-death experience. But I was curious where you guys stood on that. So is it Harry Potter talking to Dumbledore in his mind that isn't real, just telling him what he already knows? Or is it something else? I always assumed it was the real Dumbledore. It's either he's at the near-death state, which lets him talk to him, or vice versa, it's the continuation of the Resurrection Stone. I've always been of the mindset that it's not just him imagining what Dumbledore would say and telling him stuff he already knows. I have always been of the mindset that he's somehow communicating with the real Dumbledore, either through the magic of the stone or through the fact that he essentially was dead and had the choice to actually leave the world or because of the Horcrux shenanigans to come back. Yeah, I'm, I'm also on board with that. I thought he was actually talking to Dumbledore in some sort of limbo position. Yeah. And the only reason he was able to have the choice to come back was because he was fused with the Horcrux, so he had the choice to say, okay, I was killed, or just the Horcrux part of me was killed. Well, he also, a lot of people argue that the reason he had the choice to uh, either die or come back was because at that point, according to the tale of the Deathly Hallows, he was the master of death because he, in theory, somewhat tenuously owned the Elder Wand, he was wearing or carrying the invisibility cloak and he also had the resurrection stone in his possession. So he had all three of the deathly hallows. So according to the story makes him the master of death, which is why he kind of in that moment has the choice to either die or not die. Well, here's the thing. Cause like the issue with that was a lot of people said, well, it's cause he had the resurrection stone. Of course he didn't die. He would have came back, but we also know the resurrection stone, it can bring people back, but, but it's only shadows of who yeah, they are. And they right. die. They disappear pretty quickly afterwards. But there's another interesting thing that comes out of this. Voldemort does strike down Harry Potter, but he doesn't become the owner of the Elder Wand. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's literally the definition of how the Elder Wand's ownership passes most of the time is through the killing spell. So the fact that Voldemort cast the killing spell and it didn't allow him to own the wand that had been belonging to Harry at now, that time. Yeah. In all senses, yeah, Harry should have technically lost such duel because... Even if he wasn't fully killed in that instance, he was incapacitated. Now, I, think, I do have an idea on this. I, I also think I have an argument for why it didn't pass over, which is just that Harry wasn't dueling with Voldemort. He was choosing to die. So in that sense, yep. much the same way Dumbledore had planned on so the wand not there was passing no, to anyone because he was choosing to die. There was no forceful taking. There was no forceful taking. He was willingly sacrificing himself. I would agree with you, but we also know that the first time the other one passed on, the owner was killed in his sleep and the one was taken. It's true. Mm -hmm. So but here's my idea. But that wasn't willing death. That was a forceful taking of the one. Well, well, my, my taking of it was the fact that you either have to kill the person or defeat them in a battle. Again, to your first part, Harry did not go there to fight. He went there to die. So it wasn't a battle and he also did Didn't not die. kill Harry. So, the, really, the only question comes down to, why didn't he die? <laughs> Which I guess you can make the argument, maybe Voldemort couldn't fully kill him because he was a Horcrux. Uh, I, there's some loose yeah. open... Because there's rules for what can kill Horcruxes, right? So, maybe the fact that Harry's a Horcrux, the attack only destroyed the Horcrux within him and not actually killed him. Yeah. But at the same time, we also know that there's a magic fire spell that can kill Horcruxes for some reason, even though it doesn't make sense. Well, it's fiend fire. It just does. It breaks all the rules specifically so that J.K. Rowling doesn't have to rewrite new rules. <laughs> I, honestly, that's one of the things I think a change they made in the movie was better than how the book did it. 
Because in the movie, they had to go back into the Chamber of Secrets to get the Basilisk Fang. Yes. Because yeah. they needed specific things to destroy them. And that actually gave Ron and Hermione something to do in the final battle, as opposed to just kind of running around. They actually had to get the weapon to defeat the Horcruxes. Instead of just having Horcruxes just get destroyed in fire. So, fan theories now. Yep. We're all on board. This is happening. Okay. Now I, tell me about the Ron one that I know exactly what you're going to mention. Yes, you know the Ron one already. <laughs> I actually have eight of them here. Oh, We've God. already touched on uh, one of them, which was my Arthur Weasley was Imperiod. Yeah. Um, so the next one, the Ron one, this one has mostly been debunked by the books because this one originally came out just after, or it started around the time of like the second book and only became more yeah, and more popular. As soon as Time Turners just fucked everything up. Yeah. Uh, and only became more and more popular until the seventh book when it was thoroughly debunked by the seventh book, but it's yeah. still a delightful theory, which is that Ron is actually Dumbledore. Uh, so... Ron, uh, over the course of the story, kind of fights through everything, ends up going back in time and living the life of Dumbledore as a professor. So he goes back in time, applies as a professor at the school. That's why he seems to know, uh, why Dumbledore seems to know a lot of the stuff that's going on and how things break down. Because he's already lived through it once yeah. as Ron. And they also share a lot of traits, such as, like, you know, wizard's chess and... They're both very tactically minded. Yeah. They both... Uh, it's shown that they both have red hair. They both love birdie bots every flavor beans. They both get scars on the same knee. Yeah. It's a lot of very, like, eerily similar traits that cause people to be like, Oh, I, I get it now. Harry and... Or, not Harry. Ron and Dumbledore are the same person... Ron just traveled back in time and assumed the life of Dumbledore. And, and now, for most people, I find that this isn't a, a middle ground. I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. Usually people are just very much like this idea or very much hate this idea. Yeah. I'd see some merit in it, if not for the fact that we have so much backstory on Dumbledore already and his actual past. Yeah, so and that's how the thing. that all contradicts everything we have. That's the, it was a very popular theory until book seven. Mm -hmm. And then in book seven... That's when we learn all of Dumbledore's past, and everyone's like, oh, I guess this does not fit with any yeah. of our ideas about... Yeah, I think Ron. the only way they could have pulled it off successfully is if they had, at some point in the book, Ron gets pulled into some sort of time thing, and he's gone, and then you have the twist reveal after that, that, oh, I'm Ron, I lived my life up to this point until I disappeared, and I'm gonna help you guys move forward. Yeah. So next theory that I'm a big fan of, and I actually really like this one because it adds a lot to the plot, uh... Is that Harry is now immortal. So the way that <laughs> the prophecy about Harry and Voldemort goes out is either must die at the hands of the other. Which means that uh, a, a lot of people focus on the next line which is for one must kill the other. Which a lot of people read as just one of them has to kill each other before this whole shebang is over with. But a lot of people like to focus on that first line where either must die at the hands of the other. Which people interpret as... The only way that Voldemort can die is at the hands of Harry, and the only way that Harry can die is at the hands of Voldemort. So the moment Voldemort dies, Harry's now immortal and cannot die, which adds a huge amount to the kind of choice that Harry makes to defeat Voldemort, because it's shown repeatedly that the people Harry cares most about and wants to be with most are all dead, and Harry can't be with them unless he dies as well. So choosing to be immortal means he's also losing out on his time with them as well, when all of his friends and family start to die, he's also still going to continue to live and not be able to take any time away from that. Now, the cool thing about that is it kind of touches base in where I thought the story was going at the end there initially, where Harry ends up going down because uh, Voldemort kills him and then the twist is, oh, Harry's still alive. But I thought it was the resurrection stone that brought him back. So I actually believe that Harry was already dead and he was living on borrowed time to kill Voldemort and the story would initially end with both of them dying and being gone. 
Because hmm. I thought the final battle would be he defeats Voldemort and then just like Voldemort vanishes, he would also vanish because the Resurrection Stone is not permanent. You're only back for a little bit from it. So another theory that I'm a fan of. This one, uh, I'm not as big of a fan of and I have like slight modifications I would make to it to make it more enjoyable to me. Which is a lot of people believe, based on the fact that the way Harry gets into Gryffindor is the hat tells him he should be a Slytherin and Harry's like, nope, uh, let's, let's, let's go with Gryffindor. So the uh, belief that a lot of people seem to have is that the only way to get into Gryffindor House is to choose to be, like, to make the brave choice to say, oh, yeah, I, I want one. to be in Gryffindor. Yeah, I know this one. Uh, and then that is how people get into Gryffindor. Yeah, because uh, Slytherin is a person who has, like, great ambition and stuff like that. Ravenclaws are people who are very, like, intellectual-minded. Hufflepuffs are, like, you know, good, friendly, uh, loyal. I just like your description as a Hufflepuff. Of, Hufflepuffs are good. That's what we have. I mean, they even describe that whenever they talk about us. We're not great. But we're, then we're Gryffindor's good. key thing is courage. So if you look at the main cast, Harry does make sense in Slytherin. Hermione makes sense in Ravenclaw. And Ron, Ron makes, makes sense, sense in Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. But all of them had the courage to ask to be in Gryffindor. Now, of course, there's a bit of a flood of this because every goddamn Weasley ends up in Gryffindor. Which, which is why I don't love this idea i do love the idea of it's not the only way to get into gryffindor is for you to request to be a gryffindor but i do love the sub idea of each of the main three actually made the request to be in gryffindor and yeah. if you do make the request to be in gryffindor mm-hmm. the hat listens to that shit but now to be fair I, this... I also like uh the thought that uh every weasley was in ron's state when they first got to hogwarts <laughs> they're absolutely terrified and so they wanted to be just like their family in gryffindor too and that's why Ron is sitting on the stool and he's just praying to himself, Gryffindor, 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 well, Gryffindor. And as soon as the hat that. lands on his head. Because Ron's fears is he's going to be the first Weasley not in Gryffindor. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the going in, that, that idea is planted, but they kind of pseudo uh, uh, like show that the theory is correct. Where it wasn't so much as you need to ask it in Gryffindor, it's the hat takes your request into consideration regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was kind of proven, kind of. And I, I find it very believable that while not every Weasley specifically requested to be in Gryffindor, at a certain point it probably did come up where, like, the Weasleys have this huge tradition of being in Gryffindor to the point where, like, if everyone, like, Ron is, realizes it himself, like, he even says to himself, with my luck, I'll probably end up being in Hufflepuff. Yeah. So anytime one of them realizes that their traits don't quite align with the Gryffindor ideals, they get paranoid and start mm-hmm. asking to be in Gryffindor. Because yeah. if you go through the Weasleys, too, like, very clearly, like, Fred and George, Hufflepuff, definitely. Yeah. Ron, Hufflepuff. But then Bill, Charlie, and Ginny, all Gryffindor. Makes perfect sense. Percy, clearly a Ravenclaw. <laughs> Percy yep. is definitely a Ravenclaw. <laughs> Maybe uh, a Slytherin, but mainly a Ravenclaw. Per- perhaps a Slytherin, definitely a Ravenclaw. Yeah, but he also ended up a Gryffindor. Probably when he was a small child, was terrified of the idea of going outside the family norms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, even in the first books, he's very clearly, like, all about family. And then, later on, kind of switches away from that. Also, thinking about it, Arthur, definitely Hufflepuff. Molly, uh, I believe is the mother's name. Yes. Yes. Definitely a Slytherin. No no doubt in my mind that woman's a Slytherin. <laughs> I buy it. Yep, the uh, howler she sends to Ron. Oh my <laughs> god, that's terrifying and devious. Speaking of the different uh, members of the uh, Weasley family, though, that does remind me of one of my favorite moments of the books, which is in the movies, whenever the kids get their sweaters from Mrs. Weasley. They all have the first letter of their name emblazoned or like sewed into the sweater and it's like a big deal. In the books though, the only ones who have the first letter of their name sewn into their sweater 
is Fred and George. And there's this amazing line about it in the books that doesn't make it into the movies, which is a shame because it's one of my favorite lines from the whole fucking books, which is Fred and George talking about, look, she even sewed the first letter of our names into it. Probably thinks worried we'll forget what our names are. That's foolish, though. I know I'm Gren and he's Forge. Although <laughs> <laughs> well, they're always making jokes about that, too. Like, what is it? Goddamn, one of the first jokes that comes out of the, uh, the mouth after the ear gets taken off is, I guess now they can tell us apart. Yeah. And then there's the it's holy like, joke. Like, I'm holy. I've yeah. got a hole in my head. Now, the whole world of ear-related humor, and you choose to go for holy? There, now, there is something I want to discuss real quick. Uh, it's kind of overarching in the whole story. Now, one of the big things we found out is that Neville or Harry could both be the chosen one to defeat Voldemort. Yeah. But there was something that I feel would have been so much better as a story is because it ties in so much with really where I got this idea where it would be a good idea is going back to Goblet of Fire. Yeah. So Goblet of Fire, the whole premise of that is that Moody is actively pushing Harry through all these to succeed. So that got me thinking, well, what if the big twist at the end was because we had the hints all through that Neville was getting the same prophecy essentially. So the idea of, oh, Neville and Harry, either one could be it. But what if they did at the end that Neville was actually the chosen one, Harry was not, and Harry was actually just a decoy for Neville the whole time. So we would have that cool twist at the end where Harry, who thought that he was succeeding in all these ways just because he's the chosen one, actually did everything of his own merit, and it was actually Neville that was being pushed along secretly. I, I like that theory, especially because it allows for the scene where like Harry, believing that he's the chosen one and this is what has to happen, goes to fight Voldemort. Voldemort fucking kills him and everyone immediately goes like oh no that was our only chance only for Neville to be like we can't stop fighting now and Neville to join the fight the fucking Gryffindor sword so then we it's like okay now we have Neville motherfucking Longbottom here (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. I also like the theory that Neville is also the chosen one because we have Harry sure but everything's thrust upon him he doesn't really have to do anything of his own merit like you said he's pushed through everything yeah Neville has to work for everything himself. Yeah, but he, it's a nice little invert of what we had throughout the series. Yeah. All right, so I got two more theories I want to get through real quick. Yeah. I'm going to cut off some of the less enjoyable ones. First one, uh, akin to the Ron as Dumbledore theory. This is another Weasley time traveler theory. George is actually Willy Wonka. So George... <laughs> yeah, I know this one. What? So we know that George has a penchant for... Uh, creating magical food and items that cause spontaneous effects on the consumers of that. Yes. We know of another character who has this, Willy Wonka, uh, because he creates the gum that tastes like all the different foods that turns Violet into a fucking blueberry. True. Which is a very George's thing. So the theory essentially goes that after the uh, war, when uh, Fred dies off in the war... George, like, so distraught about the fact that he doesn't have a twin to, like, own his shop who he's built his whole life around being with, goes back in time, opens up a separate shop specifically for muggles, where he still continues to sell all of his magical wares. Like, he's got fucking Oompa Loompas. If that's not a thing that he found somewhere (laughs) in the wizarding world... He dressed up a bunch of house elves. Regardless, he has fucking Oompa Loompas. He creates this magical world just to, like, still bring joy to people. Just because he feels like he can't exist inside the wizarding world anymore. It's a phenomenal theory, and I choose to believe it. Like, there's also the fact that Willy Wonka at several points refers to the fact that he's hard of hearing, so he can't hear kids as they ask horrifying questions about how his plant works. George loses his ear, and it affects his hearing from that one ear. So clearly he creates, like, a magical prosthetic to cover it up to look like he has ears, but he still can't hear through that ear. (laughs) Second theory that I fucking love is that... It's the whole statute of secrecy idea, which is 
the session of secrecy exists in this world. Wizards aren't allowed to owe the idea of wizard and kind to muggles. Uh, and they take every step possible to ensure that the muggles don't find out that wizards exist. And that's always irked a lot of people. It's like, why do they care so much if muggles know whether or not they exist? Also, why aren't wizards in more places of power? Like, one of the arguments we get is like, oh, if muggles understood that wizards exist, they would want, like, magical solutions to all of life's problems. Which, honestly, if you can use magic to solve all of life's problems, why the fuck don't you? Why are you encouraging people to suffer without magic? Especially when, like, it's proven throughout the books that, like, a lot of the problems that plague muggles are actually just wizards fucking with them. So, like, if wizards are going to be the cause of a lot of their problems, why don't they also yeah. act as the solution? And not all muggles are ignorant also, yeah. because, like, parents of wizards who go to the wizarding schools. And it's like, the prime minister. Yes, the prime minister knows about this, because the minister of magic is actually technically his subordinate, uh, who has to report to him on all things going on. So, the great thing about this uh, theory is it kind of explains all that away in that long ago before the time of the books there was a huge war between wizards and muggles that the muggles actually won and that is why the wizards are going into hiding is because they know if they come out again uh, the wizards muggles will just team up again and kick the shit out of the well that's wizards. because if we learned anything from Arthur they don't have any idea what the fucking muggle stuff does like what, what is that it makes a loud boom sound and explodes that's why they don't use guns we even have like proof of some of the stuff because like wizards clearly used to be way more powerful like the founders of hogwarts did magic that no one else understands yeah fucking merlin is a character who exists in this world who they're yep. constantly talking about him being one merlin's of saggy left testicle merlin's beard uh order of merlin like all these re- uh, references to merlin being one of the greatest wizards of all time no one like his caliber anymore that's because there was fucking crusades and inquisitions where like fucking muggles killed off the most powerful wizards and now that bloodline has just dried up, so there's no one of that caliber anymore. Because they killed off... It. Essentially, the way it works is magic is passed down genetically, which is kind of shown through the fact that if two wizards have a kid, they're much more likely to have a wizard than if two muggles have a kid. So, by killing off these most powerful bloodlines, they've weakened wizards to the point where, like, if wizards rise up, rise up again wizarding power has gone down over time whereas muggle technology has created the fucking atom bomb and they will wipe wizards off the face of the earth if they try anything i actually really like that theory because it also gives voldemort more of a motive to do what he's actually doing yeah voldemort and grindelwald are both given a lot more explanation because they believe that the natural order is wizards on top and they know that wizards have tried before and failed which is why they want to unite all of wizards and get them all on the same page so that they can do it right this and time. And get rid of muggles before the muggles can get rid of them. Exactly. And then I like the fun little thing that Voldemort's uh, father is actually muggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a series on YouTube called How It Should Have Ended. I just yes. want to briefly talk about it. And they had a How It Should Have Ended for Deathly Hollows Because it addresses my biggest issue with Deathly Hollows, and that is Snape. Snape is the potions professor, a triple agent... And he didn't account for fucking snake venom. Yeah. He should have known. He should have... Like, if it was someone else who didn't have anything to do with potions and antidotes, I'd be like, okay, it's probably a difficult thing to make. But he knew... And he was a servant of Voldemort. He knew Voldemort had a snake. That he constantly kills people with. Yes. To be fair, we're given examples in book The Order of the Phoenix that Nagini has a very peculiar type of poison where, like... Even having a deep understanding of the fact that it was Nagini who bit into uh, Arthur Weasley, they still have no idea how to cure it, and it takes like a long fucking time for them to cure Weasley. 
even though like they manage to get it so that he doesn't die because he's not losing blood anymore they still can't make the holes in his arm and chest go away. Yeah. So clearly Nagini's got some special properties. There's also the fact that Nagini's a horcrux, so her poison probably is beyond the capabilities of normal snake's venom. So I think the idea of like an anti-venom for this very unique situation is probably a little bit difficult. But yes, Snape probably should have had something prepared yeah. to survive. Unless I'm going to sit here and cry and go take my tears to like, Dumbledore's memory fountain. Like, uh, Dumbledore saved me from my dark history... I want to be with him in my dying days. I don't think it was Dumbledore he wanted to be with. No. I think he wanted <laughs> to get all. some of that sweet, sweet Potter puss. Or Evan's yeah. puss, if you prefer her maiden name. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking to about cl- Harry Potter. <laughs> to clarify, I'm not talking about the child. All right. Is there uh, anything else you guys wanted to discuss about Harry Potter today? Not not after that. No. No, I think you that... Think, you think that was a perfect ending I, point? I think, well, not perfect, but it's a, certainly a closure. Ideal. Uh, I'd call it more of an opening, but whatever. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening through that, I guess. You know, I uh, should like that joke, but... Uh. It was uh-uh. right up your alley, man. Uh, if uh, you're uh, looking for finding our podcast, we're on all available platforms. Please rate and review. If we haven't somehow scared you away at this point. Honestly, at this point, I won't be upset if you give us a one. Uh, make sure to tune back in two weeks' time to see our next episode. And, of course, you can email us if you have any suggestions, episode ideas, or just comments, corrections at what is my podcast about at gmail.com make sure though to turn it into those two the next two weeks what are so, we gonna talk about keith uh i was thinking we could talk about uh the one under your bed the one under the stairs the clown with the tearaway face and the shadow on the moon at night i like it dips on the shadow Uncle's like a piece of shit.